0: my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to The Astrology Podcast. This episode was recorded on, what is it, Tuesday, January 29th, 2019, starting at 1.19pm in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 191st episode of the show. You can help support the production of future episodes of the podcast by becoming a patron through our page on Patreon. For more information, visit com slash subscribe. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with Kelly Surti's and Austin Coppock and we're going to be looking at the astrological forecast for February of 2019. Uh, Hey guys, welcome back to the show. Hey, Chris.
1: Hey, guys.
0: Uh, Where are you both at? Austin, you're joining us from Oregon like usual. Yep, back home. And Kelly, where are you at?
1: I'm in Sydney in Australia right now on the road doing my best traveling astrologer impression.
0: Awesome. You just got done with your forecast. You were just in like, where? In in Florida?
1: In Palm Springs, actually in California. Um, So yeah, Tony and I had run a 2019 year ahead astrology retreat down there, which just wrapped up maybe about 10 days ago. So that was the first time we'd done something like that. And it was fantastic, if we do say so ourselves, based on the feedback we got. And uh, we're going to do it again next year. So I was part of the way to Australia. So I've just come out here for a few weeks uh, to see family and do a bit of work out here.
0: Awesome. That sounds great. Uh, So you guys are prepped and ready. You've both done like different astrological writings for February. I just got done doing a marathon, like 12-hour series of- uh, live streaming horoscopes last night on Facebook and Twitter and YouTube. So I am prepped and ready to talk about the astrology of February. Austin, I'm sure you looked at all of this like years ago, uh, probably for some <laughs> some forecast, right?
2: No, I I mean I I, I do it like the month before, so okay. it's always fresh for me. Um, but yeah, I wrote my, wrote all my dailies and I did my monthly summary and I looked at it in the context of my yearly. So
0: I've got got some thoughts. Good. Uh, Yeah, I remember when you used to do the almanacs because you had to publish those like way ahead of time, and that was a yearly almanac that was printed. So you're looking at stuff like a year, year and a half ahead of time, right?
2: Yeah, when I was doing those, I you know you've got to have uh uh, yeah, there was basically a monthly summary and then daily entries and then other essays, and that was really interesting to do an entire year ahead of time. I think Kelly's done stuff um, even further ahead of time because I was self-publishing. And yes. so you know, I didn't have to have everything done six months before publication. But you've you you you've worked with some publications where you were like out six months plus, right, Kel? Well, yeah, still absolutely.
1: Doing yeah, yeah. I still actually, funny you should mention it. Uh, here's the 2019 Wellbeing Astrology Guide, a very uh, Neptune in Pisces cover. But yeah, we um, we actually go to the printers in June, um, and the magazine they put it on sale late August, early September. So this edition, I wrote um, like the 2019 horoscopes. I wrote in March of 2018, so you do have yes. But when you're working with a sort of a publishing company, there is quite a long lead time. So you kind of do it, and then you, I would almost have to revisit it as we get closer. Like, oh, what was happening that month again? Yeah, um, I, but I so make. Have, you had, episodes, the, so, have
2: yeah. you had the experience? I bet you have, where you read something that you wrote a year ago about what's happening now, and you you have no memory of writing it, and you're like. Well, wow, you know, that's really helpful. That's really insightful. I'm glad whoever that was wrote that. Yeah. Right. Yes. It just it seems alien because you don't remember doing it and it was so long ago. And you're like, oh, that's I guess I am pretty good at this. I'm glad I read that.
1: Yeah, I I have had that. And sometimes I think, oh, that's a really nicely constructed sentence. Who wrote this? And yeah. then I'll be like, oh, you know, not to big note yourself, but you do forget what you're what you create, if you like, um, a a long time ago or B when you're in the, the throes of that inspired. Sort of process,
2: yeah. Well, it's in writing, especially when you're, you know, writing horoscopes or writing dailies. Like it's such a trance. Like it's not a normal. It has to be awareness. It
1: has to be, yeah. When you're, especially if you're doing dailies, you do have to. This is where I always think my Pisces bits love it because you just get into a flow. You you come out of that really conscious, clear, rational, and you just drop into some kind of flow state and let it let it flow or let it go. That makes sense. Like let it have its head
2: that makes sense. Or you how should we say you scramble you un- uncomfortably for an hour to try to find <laughs> that that flow state. You're like, I've been there before and you try I'm trying to find my way back home.
1: Where is it? Yeah. It's it's funny there's a beautiful piece uh Elizabeth Gilbert who some of our listeners may have heard of. She wrote this book called Eat Pray Love years ago you guys have probably heard of her. Uh, she gave a TED talk on creativity, which is amazing. And if anyone hasn't seen it, I highly recommend it. And she talks about a poet, I think it's Mary Oliver, but I'm not 100% sure, where the poet is like out in the field one day or walking around and sort of feels this poem coming through her. And she's kind of rushing to get home so she can write it down with her pen and paper. And. She kind of just grabs the end of the poem, and as she's writing it down, she's writing it down backwards, if that makes sense. So then, just mm-hmm. it's sort of the, it's, in Elizabeth Gilbert's talk, she talks about how, um, in sort of the ancient Greek thought, you weren't a genius, but you had a genius inside you. So you had this kind of creative inspiration creature. And uh, this is very, very Piscean approach, which is probably good as we contemplate um, February's extended Mercury and Pisces tour that's coming up. So, yeah, that sort of idea of interacting with the creativity. But, yeah, it's knowing the flow state and then how do I get back into it, mm-hmm. basically. What I
2: like that, too, the, like, the you grab – you you grab whatever the, the poem or the piece or the idea by whatever 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 you have. If you have it by the toe, you, or you, know, the you, tail. you follow yeah. you follow that piece to get to the whole body
0: of it. But sometimes yeah. you're just like, uh, I know it's kinda like this, and you know, you you follow it. Right. And that's yes. one of the interesting things about reading different authors of astrological forecasts and horoscope columns is sometimes they pick up or end up focusing on different Pieces of like the entire puzzle, or accessing it, and everybody often gets to a similar place, but sometimes they start at different locations depending on like what's speaking to them more that month. Definitely.
1: A hundred percent. Yeah. Some people are focused on the arms, on the heads, on the tail. You know, they can get into the core that way, but they've come in with a different perspective or a different point of view.
0: Yeah. All right. So. That's part of what we're going to be doing here today as we look at the astrology of February. So as usual with our forecast episodes, if this is your first time, we're going to spend uh, the first little bit, I'm going to guess about 45 minutes or so, probably longer, talking about catching up, um, talking about a few general discussion topics related to astrology that have come up over the past few weeks. And then in the second hour of this, we're going to get to the actual astrological forecast for February, which is going to include an overview of all the major transits, plus a featured highlighted electional chart for the month uh, using the principles of electional astrology. So uh, if you are bored already with our uh, discussions, you can jump ahead to the forecast. There will probably be a timestamp in the description below this episode, probably on YouTube or on the description page on the astrologypodcast.com. So given that no one has any right to complain, uh, if you don't just jump forward and, <laughs> and skip anything. You so it's the internet. That's pod. the
2: one inalienable uh, internet right is the right to complain.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, you can't take the that only, away from the people. The people that do have a right to complain is our lovely audience who's joining us today and who has no ability, unless they walk away to skip out from our conversation. That's true. Our live audience. So apologies to them, but thanks everyone for joining us today. Um, so I've got a few discussion topics lined up. Um, before we get to those, I just want to see if there's any news or stuff. We meant to mention before we get into uh, other events. I know one major thing that's coming up that we just finalized in the last week or at least got some preliminary plan of is that we scheduled and we're ready to announce that we're going to be doing a podcast event at the Northwest Astrology Conference uh, the day before the opening on Thursday in May, right? Yes. Damn right.
1: Very exciting. 8:30 PM. Be there it's, or be square.
0: Yeah, it's the the Norway Norwalk pregame. Yes. The pre funk. So Norwalk pregame show. We're gonna. We're thinking about. We're still kicking around ideas, but we're thinking about doing one of these forecast episodes and recording our forecast for June uh, at this little two hour pre conference event on Thursday. What is it? May twenty. 20- do you guys know the date? Is it the 23rd?
1: Uh, Let's double-check. We should know this. That would be uh, good. I have to look up. Uh, so it's the, the th- Thursday before Norwalk. The 23rd. Yeah, spot on.
0: Cool. So Thursday
1: the 23rd.
0: Thursday the 23rd in Seattle starting at 8 p.m. It's going to be right, before, right after Mark Jones's pre-conference um, workshop. So if you're attending that, you're going to have to come in a little bit early because the conference doesn't officially open until the next day, until Friday. But we're hoping it works out so that some of the podcast listeners can join us. Um, seating is going to be limited. We've only got room for about 200 people, so definitely we don't have reservations or anything like that, but hopefully we'll be able to fit everybody in.
1: And it's a kind of an open event, if I'm understanding it correctly, correct me if I'm wrong, where if you just happen to be in Seattle and maybe you are or aren't coming to the conference, you can certainly pop in to our podcast event.
0: I'm not actually entirely sure about that. I do know it's going to be- Okay, that
1: part we have to check. Okay.
0: I do know it's going to be a free (laughs) event, so people don't have to pay extra for it, which is one of the cool things. And I'm hoping that'll help people to attend, but definitely people attending the conference or people flying in from out of the the city, I want to make sure there's plenty of room for them Uh, so hopefully there will be and there'll be 200 seats. So it should be a great Mm -hmm. event. It'll be very similar to the event that we did at UAC just um, last year and last May. So if you want a preview of what that'll be like, just go back and watch the episode we did with the recording from that. All right, so that's exciting and we're all going to be at NORWAC then coming up in May and that conference, it sounds like it's getting really big and getting really full. Like I heard that the hotel might be booked up at this point.
1: Mm -hmm. The hotel is already booked up. Yeah, okay. there's there are overflow hotels that Laura, the conference organizer, is directing people towards.
2: Okay. So there's Yeah, there are a lot of hotels in that area. So it's yeah. not like people are gonna have to be
0: ten miles away. Okay. Yeah. That's good. Uh so that's gonna be the big conference of the year that everybody's I've I've seen a lot of younger astrologers like raising money and doing innovative like fundraisers and stuff in order to get tickets. So I'm pretty excited about that and looking forward to, to seeing and meeting a bunch of people there. In just a few months. The other big conferences this year are in June, the Astrological Association of Great Britain is hosting their annual conference, and I'm going to be speaking there for the first time. So I'm looking forward to seeing some people in the UK. Uh, then in August, I believe, is the NCGR conference in Baltimore, which is the other big US conference this year. So, yes. Yeah. Are either of you going to that one?
1: No, I don't or believe so. No,
0: no East Coast this year. All I- right.
1: Yeah, it's – um, I, I don't know that I've been to an NCGR conference before, but I just really like to keep July and August conference or major event free if possible because um, there's so much travelling that happens at other times of the year. And uh, I'm super excited about NORWAC this year. Uh, a, we're all going to be there together, which is great, but I've got quite a full presenting schedule there. So that will be my big conference event for 2019.
0: Right. For some reason, we've just added an additional <laughs> event. So, me and Kelly are going to be uh, pretty worn out by the end of the week. We're going to do that pre-conference, podcast event, two lectures, and then a workshop. You know, are you giving a keynote or anything as well? You are? <laughs> okay. Okay. <And> Kelly <laughs> On Friday also at the opening. A keynote. Oh, the opening. You're going to yes. open the entire conference. Yes. Okay.
1: So, no pressure. No. Yeah. just easy. No one will see that if I flop. Uh yeah. So it'll be I'm really looking forward to Monday night. I think you'll find me slumped over a vodka in the bar, maybe.
0: Very Um, good.
1: Yeah. Good. It'll be fun. It's all it's my favorite conference to go to, so I'm really excited to see people. And it is, it's huge. Like there's twice as many tickets that have been sold so far, I think, for this event.
0: Yeah, and I'm told that a lot of podcast people are signing up for it. So that's pretty exciting. I think we're gonna see a lot of people there. I did want to mention one other piece of information about that, that there's scholarships available. Uh, There's a diversity scholarship for NORWAC. I think they also have a general scholarship that seems to be available through their website. So you can find out more information about both of those at the conference website, which is norwac.net. I think the Association for Astrological Networking is also about to offer and announce scholarships for this year, and many people uh, apply for those in order to get some scholarship or at least a partial grant to attend a conference although I think they can also sometimes be applied to other things like research projects. So, just do a search for the Association for Astrological Networking and becoming a, m- a member of that, and then I think you'll be eligible to apply for one of those scholarships. And Kelly, you just finished a term on the board of AFN?
1: I did, actually. Yeah, I just served. I stepped in to complete somebody else's term who had to pull out. So I think I was about two and a half years. Really interesting experience, like a great opportunity to give back to, you know, this community who has given me so much, but to really also understand how organizations work or how the astrological organizations support astrology in in the world today with their events and their communities and things like that. So that was really interesting. Yes, we've just voted in a bunch of new members, which is going to be really exciting to see where they take a fan in the next two years as well.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited. There's a lot of newer and younger astrologers that got involved and seem to be on the board now, and it's so crucial because that's how conferences oftentimes happen—is through the organizational efforts of these organizations and some of these volunteers who put in time and effort to to make sure this community stuff can take place.
1: Absolutely, like the conferences wouldn't happen without organizations like AFAN uh, work, and it is—it's—it's it's a volunteer thing um but it's it just helps support the community and the growth and create the infrastructure that allows you know even scholarships to be given away and things like that which is just helping support the future of astrology and i'm definitely all for that
0: yeah definitely so um that's a great organization the association for astrological networking just because they have a mandate to just give away scholarships and give away i think most of their proceeds every year or most of the money that they take in has to go in, go back out to scholarships as part of their bylaws or towards community efforts like organizing conferences. Um, there's other organizations like the National Council for Geocosmic Research, which is the one hosting the NCGR conference in August, uh, ESAR, the International Society for Astrological Research, their next big conference has recently been announced. It's happening here in Denver in 2020, yes. and I'm actually pretty mm. excited about that.
1: Is that May or August? I keep having trouble remembering when that is, but it is 2020.
0: Uh, That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. I want to say May, but I wouldn't think that it would coincide with Norwalk like that.
1: Yeah, maybe it's October. Um, but you won't have to worry about flights for that one, Chris.
0: No. And I'm thinking about doing some major podcast event type stuff with that since it's going to be local. So I'm really looking forward to having you guys over. Maybe we can have like a sleepover in my place and do like a live <laughs> podcast event. Um,
1: you lie. There would be no sleep in such a thing. Right. It <laughs> would be too much talking. <laughs>
0: that is true. Um, so... Uh, so yeah, lots of conferences and organizations are important. One other organization that's important I was recently reminded of is the Association for Young Astrologers. They've been promoting their free lectures recently, which is a really awesome thing that they've had ever since the beginning, but I completely forgot about it. And I know all three of us have donated lectures to that so that when you sign up to become a member of the Association for Young Astrologers, you get access to this whole MP3 library that tons of astrologers have like given lectures to over the years. So you guys both have lectures there, right?
2: Yeah, I I can't remember what I donated. I might have a couple things in there.
1: Yeah, I think I donated one of my lectures on progression. Uh, But it's a great back catalog. And to get access to that for just your membership fee, which I'm not sure off the top of my head what it is, maybe it's 40 like, or $50 a year. No, it's, year, like,
2: it's or, like $20. Not even, I think it's like $20, oh, $20 a
1: year. Oh, 20 it's, Oh my gosh, that is that is phenomenal value, even is, if you just signed up to get access to the recording. Yeah, it's, it's
0: four or five coffees. Yeah. 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 So I've got two lectures it's, in there. You, I think both of you do. I originally signed up for this like Project Hindsight workshop that's available in there way back oh, in Oh yeah, my- yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. I listened to all those.
0: Yeah, I signed up for that in like 2004 or something, and that was the first thing that got me to sign up for AYA was that library. So anyways, that's another organization. There's lots of organizations doing great work, so sign up for them to help support not just for the personal benefit that you get out of it, which is a lot, but also to help sort of support the broader community in some of those efforts. All right, discussion topics today. Um, I just did with Lisa, Lisa and I just did a landmark episode where we finally did an episode on electional astrology, where It's something I've talked about and sort of used implicitly for years here on the podcast, but I always avoided doing an episode on that because I have a lecture on it that I sell on my website and I also have a course. So that's always been a struggle with the podcast, which is how much to sort of give away for free and just like post through the podcast versus how much to like hold back as part of my course offerings. But um, after doing the latest set of electional Stuff where where Lisa and I launched an entire year ahead report. I realized there was a lot of people who just don't understand the basics of electional astrology, or don't understand what we're doing with mm-hmm. the charts, or how to use them, or how they're constructed. So we sat down and recorded a very long, uh, almost agonizingly long three-hour episode on electional astrology and outlined most of the basic principles of the subject, especially in terms of the sort of approach that I take to electing most electional charts. So in terms of discussion topics today, I wanted to ask both of you guys, because everybody has a slightly different approach to electional just based on like what's worked for you and what hasn't over the years or what things you've decided to emphasize for different reasons. And so I was curious what some of the electional tips are for you guys or what are crucial things in electional charts that are non-negotiable for you or that you try to always integrate in, in one form or another? Uh <laughs> Kelly, you let's start with Red you. Sure. I, I, I mean a- Austin, one of the things I know you use a lot that I don't use as much is the planetary days and planetary hours due mm-hmm. to your work with uh, magical astrology, right?
2: Yeah, that's definitely a, a factor I like to take in. I um b- because a lot of a lot of the elections I've done are for magic stuff, for talismans or whatever else. And so that's that's certainly influenced my approach to electional in general I guess I see it like a treasure hunt like you know I'll look through the year or look through the month and just find what looks good like you know what what's the you know what are the best skies of that of that period whatever the whatever the treat is and then you know and then play with the you know the right the various risings and and you know this day or that day Um, With the moon aspecting this from this angle or another, and just kind of, I try to find the good thing and then find the
0: best possible angle on the good thing. Right, like that's a
1: really good summary.
0: Like sometimes finding like the dignified planet that's in its own sign or exalted, and then figuring out the best way to accentuate that by like putting it on the ascendant or the midheaven or something like that.
2: Yeah, exactly. What are we working with here? Like, what's the best thing, and then what is that good for, and then how do we, you know, get the most out of it? I guess, you know, one thing that I, I that um I've started thinking about more is um using uh, putting fixed stars on angles. Um mm-hmm. and when maybe the planets aren't doing enough for you, you know, it's like, well, you've got that too. Um it doesn't um change what the planets are doing. But, you know, there's a difference between like putting algol on the ascendant versus putting Regulus on the Ascendant. So sometimes you can use that to kinda Tune, tune the election uh, in the direction that you want.
0: Yeah, so fixed stars, planetary days, and planetary hours, that's good. Uh, what about you, Kelly?
1: Yeah. Well, I like how Austin summarized that with the idea of picking the best thing and then finding the best time on the best day where that's most active. Because that's really when you're looking over a longer period, that's exactly what you're doing. Um, you know, When I used to do a lot of wedding elections, I'd be looking for when is Venus going to be in some sort of dignity and then how can we get a chart where that's angular or aspected by Jupiter or the Sun or the Moon in some sort of positive way. Right. Um, that's but what yeah. Austin
0: there's... did for his wedding election. Yep.
1: Yes. <laughs> yeah. I think we probably both did that for our wedding election. <laughs> yeah.
0: And I've done wedding
2: elections for people where I literally just said, okay, what does it look like while Venus is in Pisces this year? What does it look yes. like while well, Venus is in Taurus? And then, okay, what about Libra? Like, yes. you know, if if the, if the time was that open, you know, be like, okay, yes. so what's the good Venus pickings?
1: Well, absolutely. And I mean, we've done exactly the same thing. Because if you've got a year, they're the first three periods that I would go to. Sometimes I might skew it to the natal, natal uh, charts. For instance, if the two individuals were quite heavy in their natal charts on fire and air, then I might prefer Venus in Libra for them. Um, where And if the individuals were more earthy or watery, I might look at the Venus in Taurus or the Venus in Pisces, assuming you've got enough, the luxury of choice, because you don't always, sometimes if you want a nice Venus, you just have to take this, you know, this one week or what have you.
2: Right. Well, it's like, or, you know, like, oh, the perfect election is on Thursday. We can get the venue on Saturday or Sunday. Exactly. Okay. Well, I like Saturday better.
1: Yes. Yeah. And that's, That's such a good point to keep in mind with elections, especially with things like weddings, where you're often like maybe Friday if you're lucky. Um, But usually what I suggest to people is there's kind of three key things you want to try and get into your electional chart if you can. The first one is you want to have the ruler of the ascendant sign in some kind of helpful or functional place or condition. So, uh, you know, you don't really want an ascendant ruling planet in the 6th or 12th house for instance unless you're specifically talking about going on retreat maybe um so usually that's the first thing then whatever the moon's doing you know what is the next aspect the moon is making is that going to be sort of helpful or because what those two things for my money are how we can get a lot of juice and activity and energy into the chart and when we're electing we want to try and put as much juice i mean people don't have to elect they can just do stuff at random moments but In an ideal situation, you'd have, yeah, the ascendant ruler uh, in a functional condition and you'd have the moon applying to aspect, well, applying to aspect the ascendant ruler would be fantastic, but applying to aspect some sort of planet that can be helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, When you can, I like to avoid putting the ascendant in the electional chart. I I like to avoid having that fall in one of the more difficult or restrictive houses in the person's natal chart. Okay. So, um, you know, you don't always get that choice, but, I I don't usually like to pick Aquarius rising elections for me personally because that's 12th house for me and most of what I'm trying to do, I don't really want to be 12th housey about it. Uh, so little things like that. And then, yeah, the fixed star part, that was when I was first trained in electional astrology, that was actually how I was sort of taught to bring in qualities of the planets that you may not be able to get via planetary placement. So the fixed stars, you know, you might have a Mars Saturn fixed star or a Venus Jupiter fixed star, and you can sort of emphasize those with an angular uh, placement in the chart or the moon. And as you mentioned, I think Algol, Austin, you know, usually it's a bigger void if Algol is on an angle in the electional chart. I'd be like, let's do this at a different time, basically.
2: Unless you're electing something truly horrible.
1: Yes, to cause grief or anxiety (laughs) or... in some capacity.
2: Probably not good for marriage charts.
1: Certainly not for marriage charts, no. I think I used to use speaker a little bit um, just as that sort of protective star sometimes in a marriage chart. Um, Yeah. Uh,
0: Yeah, I mean, it sounds like all those rules are also more or less sort of what we outlined and similar to the approach that we outlined in the episode. And that's kind of like a standard approach, I feel like if you read it through like enough electional astrology texts, while they all have like different variations for different topics in terms of what to focus on or what to avoid, there's like, like certain st- core standard things that are true for most electional rules.
1: Totally. So yeah, I, I'm pretty sure you guys would have covered those things, Chris, and, and probably a few extras in your three-hour detailed deep dive discussion.
0: Yeah, although it's funny because even those like two things of like, make sure the ruler of the ascendant is good, make sure the moon is good, breaking down what that actually means in specifics for somebody that's a complete novice to electional astrology actually takes a lot more time than you would think. Well, well yeah. yeah, you
1: have to go through all the iterations of what does a good moon in an electional chart look like? Right. Um, why is this one better than that one? Uh, yeah, no, that would that would take time to spell that out. It's easy well, for you, us to summarize here. You, you have wolf.
2: to learn astrology to understand what makes a planet good or not.
0: Right. Yes.
1: Yeah. So assuming you know all those things, there's just really 3 or 4 rules to electional astrology. Right.
0: Yeah. So um although I did I did I've been thinking about it since then and there was really one simple rule that you could really get a lot of mileage out of, which is just with the moon, um try to avoid having a chart where the moon is applying to a hard aspect like a conjunction, square or opposition with Saturn in a night chart or Mars in a day chart. And try to gravitate towards charts where the moon is applying to some sort of aspect with Jupiter in a day chart or Venus in a night chart. And it's like if you follow that basic rule, that's a really great starting point most of the time. I feel like for most electional charts.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, I would consider um, moon in a hard aspect with either malefic, but especially the out of stack malefic. That's an anti-election.
1: Yes. That's right.
2: Like any other day of the month.
1: <laughs> Avoid.
2: Right, Um, And so I I feel like 2019, I've been thinking about this, is in some ways the easiest year to get into electional astrology because just do it while the Moon's in Sag.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Just do
2: it while the Moon's in Sag.
0: And a lot of our elections, and honestly, that's really funny that you say that because our electional chart that I'm going to talk about that's the future chart for this month is in fact the Moon in Sag applying to a conjunction with Jupiter. Yeah,
2: uh, well, I will I did, you know, I did some election I've done a bunch of elections recently. I'm like, you know, being really careful and thinking about like, well, what about this? I'm like, oh, and I just end up doing it well, you know, let's just do it when the
0: moon's in Sag. Yeah. Because that's it's yeah. just there uh, for us the whole year. Yeah. Totally. Definitely. Um, <laughs> so that was actually tough because we tried to have some variation. So we released um the 2019 electional astrology report where we tried to pick out it's our first time doing it, but we tried to pick out one. Um, electional chart for each month and did that. But there's a lot of tr- for sort of featuring or trying to feature Jupiter elections this year while it's in Sag before it moves into Capricorn at the very end of the year. Uh, although there is then finally some nice Saturn elections that we did to feature I think towards the very end of the year to try to get some mileage out of Saturn and Capricorn if that's an election that you want to try to use. So one other thing related to that before we move on is the um, debate about integrating the integration of the natal chart into the electional chart. Mm. And that's something that you already alluded to, Kelly, with your third rule. And I feel like all astrologers are more or less on the same page that in theory or in best case scenario, obviously you want to and you should integrate and take into account the natal chart to some extent. But sometimes there's just a question of priority, or like which one you're going to look at first. Do you guys have um, like a prioritization in terms of? For me, sometimes it's harder because all of the rules that go into finding an electional chart, just in terms of the sequence, I'll often try to find the best electional charts I can find within the time frame that I've been given. So let's say somebody said, "I, I want to get married within this two month time frame." Tell me the best date, I will first look and try to identify the best standalone electional charts, and then I'll compare what I find. If I find like four or five charts, I'll then compare those to the natal chart and, and usually end up going with the one that matches the natal chart the best at that point just as part of my workflow for doing electionals for clients. Um, but I know that there's sometimes some debate about this and there's some people that feel like you really should start with the natal chart first. Do you guys have like a preference or does it vary?
2: I would say that my approach is very similar to yours. I prioritize the election itself, and if there are a couple that will work, then I will pick the one that is better uh, that that coheres better with the natal chart. The um a, a lot of this same discussion or debate um comes up when electing talismans, um, right. planetary talismans, mm. I'm sure, and so it's it's not. One hundred percent the same, but there there is some of that, and there's a little bit of how much does the natal chart matter, and you know I would say consensus among people who actually you know have some have put some time in and done some experiments is it matters, and then you'll get opinions as to the degree right
1: yeah, I used to favor particularly with wedding elections, I did like to have a quick look at the birth chart first, just to get a feel for you know, perhaps one person has a Saturn-ruled seventh in a day chart and in that instance we might want to, you know, include that a little bit more in the election. Um, But when I would then be looking at possible elections, you know, you can't help but notice the ones where you've got, you know, just a great election. So it is, I think it's a constant dance of weaving between this is a great electional chart versus how much is it directly connected to the, the natal chart of the person involved.
0: Right I mean, because you can have a really great electional chart, but if it puts like Mars and Saturn and Pluto and like you know Chiron in a conjunction on the person's ascendant at that exact moment, that might not be a great experience for them subjectively.
2: Yeah, um, I, yeah. that's a good way to put it I, I I don't look to the natal chart for confirmation. I look at it for possible deal killers. Mm, you know, I'll just use whatever good the good electional chart is as
0: long as there aren't deal killers when I compare it yeah. to the to the natal. Right. Yeah. Um, because it's almost like you can, in some instances, it's funny because if it's something that many people are involved in, you can kind of think of it like you might create a venture that is actually successful and goes on to be something great that outlives the person who started it, but maybe it doesn't end up being individually positive for that one person because it doesn't jive with their natal chart very well. Um, so that's the reason why you've got to take that into account in terms of not just making sure the entity that you initiate or or bring to life at that time is successful, but also that it's helpful for you personally or the person who's who's initiating it, who's asking you to make the election for them.
2: Right, like having a beautiful, talented, successful child who you don't get along with.
1: Exactly.
0: Right. And, and that's exactly what an electional chart is, is it's literally like creating the Chart for something or the birth for something, uh which is then weird if you reverse that because then you start realizing this is something I've been realizing lately as um I see more younger astrologers coming in who are like weirdly have the birth charts of transits that I remember looking at like not that long ago, like eighteen years ago, and you like remember that day very distinctly. Have you guys run into this so far yet with clients? yeah, yeah, yeah. How this is how I know I'm having like a midlife crisis when I start meeting people (laughs) whose charts I distinctly remember, like looking up the delineation on astro.com at one point in the early 2000s for like that that transit for that day. Yeah, okay, Austin, and you have like a thousand yard stare. Oh,
2: Um, well, you know, Kelly and I just have a couple years on you, okay. You guys are way ahead
0: of me on this, okay.
2: Yeah, well, we're exactly
0: X number of years ahead of you. Right yes. well, when you guys are both like Pluto and Libra, right, like I'm Pluto and Scorpio, so I'm still used to being the youngest generation in the astrological community, but now i am I am the old man with Pluto and Scorpio, <laughs> and there's all these like Pluto and Sagittarius uh kids running around,
1: yeah, it's so hilarious to hear you say that, Chris, because for such a long time you were the kid running around right, and uh Chris, now were you born not. in eighty four
0: yeah, okay, yeah, so we've got five years on you, yeah. Okay. So you guys are way yeah. ahead of me on this. You've already gone through this process and you've come to peace, come to terms with it. It's just something and that happens.
1: It is. And it's only gonna happen more and more as we continue to, well, to age.
2: And especially recently, as the more, you know, there's sort of a whole generation that's getting into astrology now. And so there are, you know, um, I'm just doing more readings for people who are like twenty three or twenty five. And I'm like, oh yeah. I remember that that was uh, i remember- I remember those transits from when I was in college,
1: right yeah yeah it's it's kind of fun 'cause it's like oh, it takes you back to sometimes good old days, sometimes some tough periods, um yeah,
0: all right, well, I'm good that you guys have already experienced this, and this is just my own personal crisis um it's, it's I think it's it's like an astrological like if you're if you're rite a, of
1: passage yeah, it, it, yeah
2: it's it's a mile marker like I'm sure it's happened to everybody who's you
0: know who's um, committed their life to astrology for forever right um, yeah so I mean there's other things that go along with that but anyways to move on I think that was the main thing I wanted to talk about in terms of electional astrology uh, most of the other like newsy topics that I have are kind of little blow off things like it's been interesting i've been seeing a lot of birth data being discovered or disseminated lately on social media mm. and that's been kind of exciting for me because for a long time i was getting kind of worried if you look through astrodata bank there's like a f- lot of funny celebrity charts which you realize when you look through it was just like some somebody from like the pluto and leo generation who had like their favorite like celebrity and they went out and tried to get their birth data or they asked them for their birth data and you can see in the notes it says like You know, astrologer asked for such and such musician's birth data. And so there's a lot of like charts for like, you know, bands that were popular in the 60s and 70s and things like that. But that drop, that starts dropping off pretty dramatically once you get closer to like the 90s and the 2000s. And I was getting worried about it for a while that younger astrologers were not going out and getting birth data for like notable individuals as much. And it sort of wasn't as common as it was in previous generations of astrologers. But I'm starting to see that change a little bit and I'm also starting to see um, how people are getting birth data or releasing birth data more easily or more frequently through things like Twitter and Instagram and things like that. Have you guys noticed some of this as well?
2: A little bit. Yeah, I mean, part of this I think the
0: the Pluto and Scorpios are on the case
2: now, ready to hunt that data down. I think we we Pluto and Libras were, felt that it might be too rude.
1: Yeah, we we didn't know the social etiquette, so we it, didn't get on that bandwagon.
2: That seems terribly awkward.
1: <laughs> yeah, but I well, I saw um, Arthur, one of our dear listeners, picked up uh, Alexandra Ocasio Cortez's birth tart, birth birth details, and that's a fantastic story. He just called or emailed her campaign office, and they checked with her, and she was happy to to share it. Uh, so that around that time, there did seem to be a bit of a rush on. Um, people getting some birth dates and details, which is fantastic.
0: Yeah, that was a really brilliant, great example of that. And what I'm really excited to see somebody, a younger astrologer who's recently come into the community doing that, where he just reached out to her campaign and talked to a campaign staffer who contacted her and got her permission and then also got the birth time and then passed it on um, with permission to Arthur to mentioned publicly. And she's like a major, you know, notable figure in the news and a politician and perhaps somebody that will become more notable in the future uh, or continue to become notable. But at this stage, relatively early in her career, um, only like a year into her becoming a public figure, that's now a piece of birth data that we have that the community can study and draw on and sort of like learn from collectively. So it's pretty exciting. And that wasn't the only one. There was another one where... On Twitter I just happened to notice um somebody I was following who's a young, younger astrologer and she follows um like Mac Miller's Instagram account and she noticed that his mother to celebrate his anniversary he just who's a musician who just passed away a few months ago and she released a picture of his birth announcement which contained his birth time so that was a really big deal, especially for a lot of younger people that were, were a friend or were a fan of that musician who passed away just a few months ago that we now have a timed chart for him, uh, which people can study and r- relate to in different ways. Um, I also saw an announcement on Twitter yesterday that Patton Oswalt had like announced his birth time uh, for some reason on his, I think it was on his Twitter account. So he's a, com- yeah. a comedian or a notable comedian. So there's just like a bunch of different pieces of birth data that are just coming out in different ways. and sometimes uh, it's easy to overlook them, but it's kind of noticeable and nice when that is like noticed and then added to a repository like Astro data Bank. Yeah, that's. It's, fantastic. Um, it's very difficult to analyze people's
2: charts if we don't know when they were born. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: um, well, yeah, and it's, it's just a big
2: part of what makes this whole thing work.
0: Yeah, and well, it's crucial because that's a crucial piece of our research processes, at process as astrologers, and contributes to like the community research effort to understand astrology better. Because those individual case studies are some of the the best opportunities to do that. And it's not just you know private individuals that astrologers consult with are obviously like a huge part of that, but also having birth data for public figures is is pretty useful as well because their lives tend to be very well documented. And therefore, they provide very useful sort of objective research studies in some instances.
2: Yeah, yeah. the Studying biographies is um, an irreplaceable tool in astrological education.
0: Right. Yes. Definitely. So just to encourage, yeah. I think those are just like great instances that I wanted to mention because I want to encourage all listeners to do that. And to challenge listeners to think of like some notable people who you're like a fan of, some celebrity follower, something like that, and actually see if we have birth data for that person, if we have a birth time for them. And if not, like consider actually reaching out and consider how you would do that and what the most respectful way would be to attempt to reach out to see if you could get that birth data somehow. And I think if more astrologers did that, then we would be able to generate. Even more sort of data to research collectively as a community. And that can only be a positive thing for astrologers in general. Totally. Absolutely. Get out there, do it, chase them down. All right. So that's happening not just with birth data, but also recently there's some uh, US, the US presidential election for 2020 is starting to ramp up and people are starting to launch campaigns. And that's been kind of interesting to watch from a birth data perspective as well. Uh, well, not just from a birth data perspective, but some of these campaign launches, you can actually time and cast a chart for the first announcement. And that's been actually really fascinating seeing when different people are announcing their campaigns and some of the charts that they're starting under versus like others, and there being this sort of qualitative difference from an electional standpoint to some of these charts. Have you guys been paying attention to those launches?
1: No, I'm trying to pretend
0: that another election isn't coming. Isn't coming. (laughs) Yeah. You've
1: got your ostriching, you've got your head in the sand. I
2: mean, there, I can imagine some good things about it, but it's just sort of like, oh, didn't we just do this?
1: It's such a long build-up with the two-year kind of campaign process. Yeah.
2: yeah. So about I'm, I'm not emotionally ready, thing? um, to add that to the, uh, you know, the ambient confusion of this year and last year, you know, it's a, it's a,
0: it's a, there's, there's a lot on our plate in this little slice of history. Yeah, yeah, I am definitely not quite ready for that either. But at least from an astrological standpoint, it's interesting to see some of it start happening. And it raised an interesting issue that I had forgotten about, which is that sometimes um, with politicians and notable people, there's sometimes a question about whether they ever are using electional astrology, which almost sounds like a paranoid thing, except back in the 1980s, a lot of the astrologers around that time, you hear stories from the early 80s when the astrologers were like, Reagan keeps launching things at really weird times like in the middle of the night, and the chart that he keeps launching them under looks um, strikingly auspicious from an astrological standpoint. It's almost as if he's using electional astrology. And then later in the 80s, that suspicion ended up being confirmed that he actually had an astrologer working for him. So, Even though sometimes, you know, that sounds like it could be almost like paranoia or something like that, there are sometimes astrologers working behind the scenes with notable people in order to elect the launch of major ventures and undertakings. Well, and that's the historical norm. If we like just back
2: up out of the 20th century and look at most of human history in most places, um, specific, you know, auspicious timing um for important, you know, for important moves by power people is is the norm.
0: Yeah, I tried to give a little like historical overview of just a few notable electional charts at the beginning of my electional episode, which is like the founding of the city of Baghdad in the eighth century mm-hmm. was elected by a group of astrologers. Um Queen Elizabeth the uh, First, her coronation was elected by the famous astrologer John D and so on and so forth down through history.
1: Yeah, it's very common. Even I think in sort of parliament in the UK, in the maybe in the 17th century, um, maybe even into the 18th, like 16th, 1700s, they used to, when they sat down to start parliament for the first time, the chart for that would be calculated so they could have an understanding of what the year ahead or the session might look like based on the astrology. So, It's a very good point you make, Austin. That it's actually more the norm that astrology would have been used uh, for things like this. You know, popes, uh, bishops to use to launch campaigns to become pope and things like that. Uh, So I'd almost be surprised if some of the presidential candidates or you know somebody, you know, people in power positions or doing major launches where there's a lot of money riding on them. I'd almost be surprised if many of them weren't actually using astrology.
2: Yeah, and I think probably. More are every day right now. Um, I think it'll we'll get back to that historical that historical norm over the next several years because astrology is re intersecting with uh,
0: the mainstream culture. Yeah, sure. Um, But then that brings up actually the point I wanted to make, which is that I'd forgotten about this, and it was something I ran into actually pretty commonly when we when Patrick Watson and I were still doing the political astrology blog a few years ago. But it was that sometimes it's actually not clear uh, whether a notable person is using electional astrology, because sometimes notable people that initiate or launch a major venture in their life that will later turn out to be successful um, will sometimes just launch it naturally under a notable or auspicious astrological alignment just naturally. If it's yeah. something that was is later going to become yep. successful,
2: that, that's when that's when successful things are supposed to happen or supposed to begin. I would say that conversely, you can tell when somebody's not using electional astrology, right? Yes. You're like, that's, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> I guess your astrologer was sick, or you don't have one,
0: right? Yeah, and I def I definitely have already started to see that with some of the launches that have taken place this past month with some stuff being enclosed versus others doing it after a period of enclosure. But it was just interesting because because of that, there's oftentimes this ambiguity surrounding whether you could even tell from the outside if a person was using electional astrology. And there's a lot of different like factors and, and other nuances that kind of go into that. But it was an interesting question to to think about. Definitely.
1: Yeah, it is.
0: Alright, so that's basically it in terms of pre-show stuff. The only other issue I have, this is probably the most important issue I have on the table to talk about today, and it has to do with my uh, concern uh, with the frequent conflation of the symbol of Cancer, which has (laughs) historically been a crab with uh, the lobster, uh, where Cancer's the only sign I think this is the only zodiac sign that you can get away with this with where cancer like artists where typically there's like a graphic designer somewhere that gets a gig where they have to like make the zodiac and I think this is how it happens like 98% of the time down through history where you have some some graphic designer who is told to like you know illustrate a zodiac and they get to cancer and they just pick some random crustacean which usually ends up being a lobster Instead of an actual crab, which is the actual like animal or totem for that sign of the zodiac. And it always like initially it bothered me and it was like a little thing that would make my eye twitch, but now I just find it kind of humorous. And I've had a few people, there was one person that reminded me of this by tweeting me a lobster cancer symbolism on Twitter this past week that reminded me of that whole issue and how it is perhaps one of the biggest issues that is plaguing the astrological community today. Do you guys agree? <laughs> um,
1: I love your concern for this. Thank
0: you. I'm I'm, I'm doing it on behalf su- of the cancers. I'm.
1: That's true, and they appreciate you speaking up for them. Well, right.
0: Somebody that actually. Has to. Yeah. Um. That actually goes back uh, into the Renaissance. Oh, I know, but I still think it's a mistake. And sometimes people will try and come at me saying, like, "Well, such and such Renaissance author also illustrated a lobster." And but the answer to that is they're still wrong. I mean, it was still a mistake that's probably based on just the illustrator not knowing the difference between a crab and a lobster, or thinking that they were equivalent because they both have like pinchers or something. But that's uh, I don't know. I draw the it's line. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm not as happy with
2: uh like the the lobster is not as symbolically delicious as far as what cancer actually means. You know, the, um, the, the fact like the, the lobster is built to move forward in a straight line and yeah, that's right. a big part of the crab is circumambulating things. Um, and they're also, yeah, I don't know. It's not as good. I would agree. Well,
1: and we need to be clear on what the difference between a lobster and a crab is so we can understand why it's wrong. And that's a great distinction there often because forward movement is not associated with the sign of cancer. We need the crab to go sideways.
0: Oh, is this um Alyssa oh. G, are you actually this in the audience? Are you the person that tweeted the lobster at me this week <laughs> on Twitter? Yes. I think we might have. She says, sorry, I retriggered the trauma for you. <laughs> she says, Yeah, okay. Well, thank you for joining us. I appreciate that you did retrigger me and I did have a sleepless night over this, but um I appreciate you reminding me of the issue so I can bring it to people's attention.
2: All right. And well, so Chris, you know, I'm gonna to have to tweet you like a new hot
0: lobster pick every day for like the next two weeks. <laughs> yes. I would actually love that if people- No, lobster not just any lobster, day. lobster Oh, you're pick. gonna
1: get slammed now. You want people to send you lobster picks?
0: Not just any lobster pick. Send me instances of um, cancer, like within the context of the other zodiac signs, like accidentally being illustrated by the crab. And I will create a whole gallery of this just to show how widespread the phenomenon has become, (laughs) and how this is one of the greatest um, travesties of our times as as astrologers in the early twenty first century.
1: Oh my goodness!
0: I'm 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 googling lobster memes already. Yeah. All right. All right. So I will leave that there. We will revisit this possibly in future episodes. Maybe episode one ninety two of the astrology podcast. In the meantime. Uh, Do you guys have anything else you want to mention or plug before we move on to the forecast for February?
1: I'll just say that I have online classes coming in March. uh, So look for info about that once once we get to about mid-February.
2: I also have online classes coming in March. Look for info (laughs) about that once we get to mid-February.
1: Austin and I—we don't actually plan this, but it just seems to be that we're sometimes on the same schedule. Yeah,
2: we'll teach different stuff, probably. Um, we
1: will totally. Well, sometimes we teach the yeah, same. Yeah, it's true. Well,
2: I area. mean, the basics are the basics. <laughs> like astrologers need yes. to teach classes on planets, signs, aspects, dignity, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but yeah, yeah. I'll—I'll I'll have my my entire year's teaching schedule figured out and laid out, so that'll just be out. I don't know, in the next two weeks by mid-February.
1: Yeah. Are you aiming before Mercury goes into Pisces to announce this, or are you happy with the first week of that?
2: Mm, We'll see.
1: Yeah.
0: We'll see.
1: See how quickly we get it done.
0: Yeah. Brilliant. And the only thing I have to promote is that I just want to say thanks to everybody who bought one of the Planetary uh, Alignments posters this month. I sent out a bunch of them over the course of the past two weeks. Hopefully, everybody has received one by now. I just shifted everything over to Amazon, so you can now find the posters on Amazon, if you search for "2019 astrology calendar poster bundle," which is kind of a mouthful, but one of the things about that's nice about having it on Amazon now is that people that are Prime members can get um, free shipping, free two-day shipping on the posters now, which is pretty sweet. So just do a search for "2019 astrology calendar poster bundle," and then you will find the posters there. All right, guys. So that's our pre-show warm-up chat. Are you guys ready to get into the forecast for February? Yes. Mm, suppose I am. I, I, I'm going to need a little more excitement than that. This is a, this is a big. Monster. <laughs> well, Chris, I really have voice. to pee,
2: and so I was just thinking about whether I should hold that or whether you know whether whether that needs to be taken care of. And okay. Since I brought I it up, I'm, uh, why don't why don't you, you guys it. pretend that I'm still here and you're covering for me while I turn off my video and go take care
0: of okay. myself? Okay. Okay. Just we'll, we'll leave the video. It. All right. All right. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Kelly. It's just me and you. I think I almost want to return back to the cancer chat because now I'm kind of riled up okay. about that, but let's leave that. Um, I- I'd love to.
1: Leave no, actually, you riled well, up about let
0: me it. actually ask you because this is one of the episodes and we were gonna <laughs> yeah. we, we weren't sure if we wanted to talk about it. I did want to ask you because I was curious what your opinion was. My other episode topic um earlier this month was I sort of discussed the more sensitive topic of why does it seem like there's more women who are into astrology than men? And I was just curious if you had any opinions about that topic. Do you agree, first off, with the premise? Do you think there are more women that it seems like there's more women in the astrological community or that have interest in astrology than men?
1: I do agree with the premise. I think just, and I don't have any uh, detailed study to back that up, but just from my subjective observation anecdotally. You
0: haven't done like an extensive scientific study?
1: (laughs) I do not have like, um, what is it like when people leave the voters and they do polls? Like, I have not done exit polls at conferences. Right. um but there there's definitely you look around at any room at any astrology event whether it's your local uh, monthly astrology meeting or something like the large uac welcome ceremony there just seems to be a much larger proportion of women there uh than men uh or yeah so that i would certainly agree with that premise do you I'm have not any, sure if I have a good reason as to why. You know,
0: I mean, do you have speculation? Like, you've always heard speculations. Are there any that you feel like have resonated with you more about why you think that is? Is it like one of the questions that people always? It comes down to is a question of is there some inherent inherent reason for that? Like, are women more drawn to astrology for some reason? Whether that's inherent and has always been the case, or whether it's just situational in terms of how astrology is now, or Is it something where it's just the marketing and how it's like geared towards now? I mean, do you have any opinions about reasons that you've thought of that have made sense to you?
1: Look, and I, again, no experts, I I don't want to sort of offend anyone, but I've been involved in various types of healing therapies over the years. Um, Probably eagle-eyed listeners have heard me talk about being a massage therapist in my 20s and and having a counselling background as well. And in those industries, there are also more women than there are men. And I don't know whether that's because you know, not that men can't be drawn to healing or you know, soulful or intuitive practices. It just seems like more women do, or m- women are more open about that type of interest that they may have. Uh, the fun, the thing I get a bit stuck on is when we look at historical astrologers, the women don't seem to be as well represented in terms of published books and things like that. You know, we hear about Valens and Maternus and Olympiodorus and. Alexandrinus and even Ptolemy, and then Lily, and uh, you know, the Persian guys, if you like. But I think you found one historical female astrologer, and I sort of wonder where were all the women then, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, well, and actually, it raised a. I was thinking about this more over the past week because I did write a post on Twitter that was like the first female astrologer that we know of that was practicing seems to be an astrologer named Baran of Baghdad. Who lived in the like the ninth century, and she was part of the same family of one of the astrologers that picked the chart for the election for Baghdad in like right. the late eighth century. But, um, I did, as I was thinking about this more, I realized we don't actually know, even though the majority of astrologers we know or virtually all the astrologers until relatively recently in history, the the published astrologers whose works survive are men, we don't actually know what the composition of the clientele, consisted of mm. for astrologers. And we don't know if like, it was men, just men seeing, seeing astrologers or if there was more women, an equal number of women, or if even back then there was more women who were seeing astrologers even though the astrologers themselves tended to be men just because men tended to be the only ones that got that type of education um, in the ancient world and in most ancient societies, which then puts a restriction on who could practice it in some sense. So and I only bring that up because I remembered that in my book I cited um from the 1st century there was a piece of satire that talked about women consulting with astrologers and then eventually they saw astrologers so much that they started seeing clients themselves and while this was a piece of satire I took it to be something that was probably had some hint or some sliver of truth in it in terms of um you know even if there were male astrologers in the ancient world that some of their clientele in the roman world would have been would have been women and so we don't really know what the breakdown was in the ancient world of like you know astrologers clientels necessarily
2: yeah and we don't know what the demographics of practicing astrologers were you know no. like if we can look at if we just took like the you know, foremost influential astrology books that might be preserved for 500 years from the last 50 and, and then extrapolate it. You know, we would have zero data to extrapolate the thousands and thousands of working astrologers who were alive at that time. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, the other thing about, you know, there may have been female astrologers working at those times in history <clears throat> and they weren't able to publish. I mean, even in English literature, we had right up into the like 19th century, 18th century, we had female writers publishing under either, you know, their initials, so they didn't present as female or publishing under a, a name that was, you know, not like sort of more gender neutral because, so th- there are some of those issues from like, why don't we have more books by older astrologers or older women astrologers, historical female astrologers. Yeah. Um, But I think you're right. We don't, we don't have data on this, um, which is, it puzzles me sometimes when I stop to think about it.
0: Sure. And definitely in terms of the historical question. I mean the two those two instances of those two the two earliest figures of female astrologers that I do know are, you know, Braun of Baghdad and then possibly Hypatia. But the the thing that they both share in common is that they would have come from a family where the family background was astronomy or astrology. And so that actually probably goes back much further where there were family lines of astrologers and lineages of astrologers where it was passed down from generation to generation as like a profession. And there's no way that you had, for example, in like Mesopotamia, um, generations of like men passing down astrology to their male children without also like their daughters probably learning astrology at the same time. And although some of their names were lost to history, i'm sure there would have been um that would have been the context in which a number of female astrologers would have learned astrology and become proficient in astrology as well at the very least
2: yeah well and that um having a family trade was also the norm historically it wasn't mm. like well go to you know go to go to kindergarten go to primary school go to high school and then go you know go to college and specialize in whatever you want right it's like well right. we know how to do this this is, yeah. <laughs> we've been doing this, this is for
1: what about learn.
0: eight generations now. Yeah. So, and that's all, you know, the history thing. But I mean, just to bring it back around to the actual modern question, which may just be a modern. Yeah,
1: I, I don't know that that speaks to the modern in any way.
0: Yeah. I mean, so do you, is there anything? I mean, what do you think? Do you, because everybody, we all know that there's a bunch of speculations and nobody actually knows the answer. And anybody that takes like an extremist position on this is probably. You know, adopting a view that's not nuanced enough, because there's probably like multiple different reasons for this phenomenon at this point in time in our society, um, and it may be different in other societies. For example, in India, uh, it may be a whole different question due to the cultural uh, acceptance mm. of astrology. But there's still just an underlying question that astrologers sometimes discuss: of just why are there more women interested in astrology at this present point in time in the West? um yeah well,
2: so i think this is um a huge topic and so i'll just say one thing that i think might be true or useful and that in that's from um from a masculinity standpoint i think that part of masculinity in the english speaking west which i'm familiar with is being rational and mm. i remember i met uh, i met a friend of a friend in la Many years ago, and we were we were talking, and he's like, "Oh, what do you do?" I was like, "Oh, I'm an astrologer." And he's like, "Oh, but you seem like such a rational person." Hmm. And that was the way he defined yeah. himself. And so, yeah. you know, I think that um, men, to a certain degree, um, are expected to perform rationality in order to, you know, get their get their man card stamped, in order to like, you know, to not to not be and placed outside that category, and so I think that there's one piece of it is um, which is a sort of a negative piece. Not if 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 more women are into astrology, then why? But why aren't why are there why do there seem to be less men? Um, and I think it would be because there's a the way that masculinity is constructed and performed. Um, in our society, or in a lot of it, has to do with this performance of rationality, which uh, astrology is a blatant violation of. But I thought you were, you seem like such a rational person, Austin.
1: Yeah, backhanded.
0: Right. And is that then a purely almost temporary societal construct that's only relative to our current culture's conceptualization of masculinity and femininity? um is there anything about that that's not temporary or that is more timeless i mean it comes down to you know one of the things that was really funny about the responses to that episode because they tended to be very extreme and i was actually more concerned going into it about offending people on the left that i actually completely forgot about a lot of the people that would be offended on the right about some of the directions that that discussion went and one of the things that ended up being debated is like a question about whether there were inherent differences between men and women that were then relevant when it comes to discussions about things like astrology and rationality and things like that. Um, And that ended up being a much more hot-button discussion or debate than I almost expected it to be with people adopting more extreme positions than I realized. So would you guys like to wade into that? Uh, Is this a great (laughs) moment to I'm guessing. I think now. Austin's
1: point is beautiful, and it it probably goes to the the piece that I was sharing earlier about you do generally see more women in the healing types of modalities, and whether that speaks to a more, I don't even know, like a less rationalistic mindset in women. I mean, I don't know that. I don't know that that's necessarily true, but we do value in our society this definition of masculinity as somebody who sticks with the facts. And you know, going back to uh really the scientific revolution is when astrology really got quite divorced from astronomy and became valued culturally as its lesser sister. I, I don't know that that's true. like I don't think astrology is the lesser sister of astronomy, but we can see that divide that happened in in society and culture
0: sure, and, and that' actually to speak to that point, that was actually something I realized afterwards as well when I was reading or rereading some old articles about. Um, some stuff that's going on with the skeptical community and women attempting to become more integrated into that and some of the conflicts that have happened in the skeptical community involving women over the past few years where evidently the skeptic like organizations and like conferences and stuff are largely dominated by and populated by men. And that's created some issues as women have tried to become more integrated into that. And have become speakers and giving talks and things like that and some of the tensions that are raised as a result of that. But I thought that was then an interesting mirror in terms of the astrological community if it's true that there is such a wide disparity between those two groups. And I don't know if that's, again, just some temporary cultural thing or if there's something else going on there.
2: Well, and that would also, again, there, there's a little bit of a it's difficult. This is a a complicated enough um, conversation and not being able to ground it in data in the present either is a bit of an issue. Mm. Just like I don't know, it seems like at that conference it was more like this, or on Twitter it seems like this, and yeah. you know, anecdotal stuff like that is good, but like you know, it's again when you're <laughs> when you're uh, when you're dealing with something that's inherently complicated, multifaceted, not even having the basic demographics makes it all the more difficult.
0: Well, and it's not that yeah. anecdotal because the original the article that I cited that started some of this discussion a couple of months ago actually did st- cite a couple of studies that have been done in the past decade, and both of them oh, okay. indicated that. that it was like two to one basically, that like for every one ma- man that said that they believed in astrology, quote-unquote, whatever that believes, that there were two women who said the same. So ended up basically indicating that they're about roughly if those polls were correct, those two different polls that there were twice as many women who professed some sort of belief that astrology was a legitimate phenomenon, which, if those polls are even roughly accurate, probably stacks up with most of our general observations about the astrological community in general. I feel like I, I would feel like,
2: yeah, that's interesting. It would also be worth differentiating um, people who would generally say, yeah, I don't know, I read my horoscope column, seems you know, seems legit versus someone who's actively you know, versus people who are actively involved and identify as astrologers or amateur astrologers. It'd be interesting to see if that changed or stayed the same. And also, um, it would be interesting to watch those numbers as we go through, let's say, now versus or five years ago versus five years
0: from now. Right. Yeah, definitely. Cause that I mean that yeah demographic may change. Go ahead, Kelly.
1: Well, I was just going to say, just to the point around, you know, people reading horoscopes versus actively involved. I mean, I can think of any number of quote unquote women's magazines who will have a horoscope column in them. But I can't really think of any quote unquote men's magazines that have horoscope columns in them. So that would be meeting, that would be like a supply meeting demand kind of thing. Well, um, And also a
2: marketing creating demand.
1: Absolutely, it's very. Absolutely. Um,
2: what's it? there. There's definitely some chicken and egg
0: dynamics. Yeah, that, I mean, that's yeah. the question: is it a chicken or an egg type scenario of which one's starting it? Is it coming because the market is demanding it, and there's more women interested in astrology? Or is it coming because the marketing itself is creating the demand?
1: It's a, it's a great question. Okay. Um. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. it's a big, complicated topic. It's hard to do justice in like a quick ten minute.
0: Sure. And I didn't want to get anybody in trouble or drag you guys into any debates that you're not wanting to get involved in. I was just curious to hear your perspective. And I know that some people were curious also to hear your perspectives on the topic just because it's you know, it's an interesting phenomenon that is discussed. I feel like this conversation has come up at different points in different conferences I've been to just because it's a general observation that people make. And then people throw out different speculations, often wondering what the causes are that contribute to it.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I'm sort of thinking, like, how would you do a survey to try and figure this out? You know, you'd have to sort of ask people why they're drawn to astrology or what they think they're getting out of it and try and determine somehow whether, you know, those who identify as women who are responding, you know, have a certain type of thing. And those who identify men, I mean, it it would almost take some time to put together how you would try and come up with some information that would answer the question.
0: Yeah, definitely. And that comes up even with a very basic thing about polls of do you believe in astrology and some of the issues with even asking that question. And what does that actually mean? Do you believe in astrology versus I don't know, whatever else? Do you think astrology is a legitimate phenomenon? Do you incorporate or use astrology in your day-to-day life Uh, and so on and so forth?
1: Yeah, because I mean, there's the difference between believing in astrology, which could mean any number of things, but then some more specific questions could be, have you ever taken astrology class or have you ha- ever had an astrology consult with someone? Um, do, you, yeah, do you actively use astrology day-to-day or what have you? Uh,
0: yeah. Well, because one of my funny th- scenarios for that is the, the respondent who is like a, a very hardcore like Christian conservative fundamentalist who says, yes, I believe astrology is a legitimate phenomenon and it is the work of the devil. Uh, so there's that like scenario of that yes. segment of the population where they would say, yes, I think astrology is real. Uh, but what they mean by that when answering that question is a little different than what we might assume. Exactly. All right, guys. Well, well I on believe on that the note... same
2: thing as that person. I just have a different
0: relationship to it. <laughs> right. You're okay with that. On yeah. that note, that's a great transition point into talking about our forecast for February. Yeah. Uh,
1: <laughs> Yes. So if you too think astrology is the devil's work, right? I'm not sure if you want to keep staying with us. Oh, All right.
0: Is that actually a good transition point? I was just making a joke, yeah. but are you guys ready to move no, on? No,
1: totally. Okay. Yeah, I mean, we're like to... uh,
0: almost an hour and a half in and we haven't started talking about February. All right, let's, so, let's so get into it. we probably should. All right, enough with the jokes. Yeah. Let's get serious about looking at the planetary alignments for next month. Um, let me throw up the chart for right now. Let's actually start looking at some charts. So here is, I'm going to throw up the animate chart in Solar Fire. Uh, everybody keeps asking me what program I use, even though I try to mention it every other episode. And this is Solar Fire with the animate chart feature. And they gave me a promo code, which is AP15. So you can get, I think, a 10% discount if you buy it through the company astrolabe at alabe.com. So, and I meant to say one of the best like investments I've ever made, I don't know if you guys have done this yet, was to buy Like a cheap second monitor for like a hundred dollars, so I can throw up charts on a second monitor all the time. Have you guys discovered this yet? This is like a great astrologer life hack. No, that's a great idea. I
1: have not.
0: Yeah, just like buy a cheap monitor, put it like off to the side, and you can just run Solar Fire in a window and throw up charts on it, or throw up the clock feature so you can just like see the clock ticking by and the ascendant changing signs at different points. Okay. Yeah, that's more great.
1: technical purchases. Love it.
0: Right. All right, so here's the chart for right now, but let's move it forward to February 1st. And I just got done doing a marathon of horoscopes, so I have plenty to say and I know a lot of details about the astrology of next month. Uh, but where do you guys think we should start? Uh, well, uh,
1: Mars is square Pluto on the first of the month.
0: Mars square Pluto. Okay, so we open up the the month. So just starting out the month with Mars at twenty one degrees of Aries, squaring Pluto at twenty one degrees of Capricorn, um, and Mars of course is coming up on it's at towards the end of Aries and is coming up on that lovely conjunction with Uranus at twenty nine degrees of Aries. I think towards the middle of the month, so it's kind of sandwiched in between the Uranus Pluto square, which was much more dominant earlier in the decade.
1: Yes. So there's, I guess there's a little volatility right out of the gate. Uh, Mars, of course, has been through Aries for most of January. It has already tangoed with Saturn and is now getting into the hot spot with Pluto. So it's, I don't know, there's the the feeling, Mars Square Pluto to me feels a little bit like the tension, you know, powerful force pitted against powerful force or like a, a young challenger, you know, coming against some sort of established or entrenched, Uh, Entity or organisation, and uh, I always think with it with a square like this involving Mars. Yeah, there's that feeling of of tension and probably a need for adjustment. So it's a bit of an intense start to the month. But uh, what are you guys thinking? I don't know if you guys uh, paid a lot of attention to that. I mean, it's it's Mars square Pluto heading into the Uranus conjunction. So there is some, there's still a bit of Mars in Aries volatility left.
2: Yeah, quite a bit. It's, um, it's a couple weeks until it actually hits Uranus, but that's sort of, the you know, that's just sort of, like you said, that's just sort of the territory that Mars is in for almost the first two weeks of the month. You know, it's square, it's square Pluto, it's square the South node and the North node square, the nodal axis it's coming up on Uranus. It's, it's volatile, you know, all of that, all of those factors are, are
0: volatile. Um, Right, and that's really interesting because I actually—it's also coming off of something I overlooked in my focus on. I was so um, entranced by that beautiful Venus-Jupiter conjunction in mid-January that was happening in the early morning hours in the night sky, where you could see those two bright white planets coming together. And I was like, "That is a great uh, electional chart." There's a nice little Grand Fire Trine around that time when uh, Mars was in Mid Aries and the Moon was in Mid Leo. I was like, that would make a great electional chart. And I completely overlooked the not so lovely Mars-Saturn square, which was also going exact virtually simultaneously around the same time.
2: Yeah, I remember that. That was frustrating. I was like, ooh, I'm gonna, oh But I yeah. could, <laughs> oh. <laughs> Well, but, oh.
0: that Yeah, that was, that was basically mid-January. So we're coming out of that as we're opening up February as well, uh, coming out of that Mars-Saturn uh, square. And yeah,
2: but it's like more trouble for Mars. And Mars yeah. like, you know, firing up
0: some of these other configurations which can be trouble in and of themselves. Right, definitely. And Venus. Yeah. So actually no, let's move on to Venus. So the Mars thing, I'm glad you guys focused on Mars because that really evenly divides the month pretty much in half because Mars spends the first half of the month in Aries and it sort of like culminates with one last hurrah or one last bang before it leaves Aries with that conjunction with Uranus at 29 Aries around the 12th or 13th. And then immediately after that, it it departs from Aries, it finally gets free of all of those hard aspects, and it moves into Taurus for the second half of February. And then at least in terms of Mars, it's kind of like smooth sailing from there. Yeah, or smooth couch surfing. Um,
1: (laughs) Smooth slowing down, that's for sure.
2: But Yeah, I mean, there's a huge difference in fire and pacing between Mars in Taurus and Mars in Aries just in and of itself you know it just because of the signs but it's also you know the Mars this last bit of Mars in Aries is Mars um increasingly conjoined Uranus which is super volatilizing right it's you know it supercharges Mars in what can be very destructive potentially destructive ways and so you know it's adding lightning to the fire And so there's such a huge difference in intensity and pacing um, between Mars as it begins the month and Mars once it moves into Taurus.
0: Sure. It's a
1: huge, yeah, that's one of the things I had said in my uh, monthly membership videos is that if you've got a lot of things that are kind of urgent or have to be done quickly, you know, you sort of want to take advantage of the Mars in Aries period because it is a bit like hitting the brakes once Mars moves into Taurus. And it's going to feel like a weird almost 24-hour period because Mars conjuncts Uranus on the 13th of Feb in the Eastern time zone. And then within 24 hours, it's actually moved into Taurus. So we kind of go through this big explosive Mars-Uranus, whether it's a breakthrough or an unexpected kind of shock or surprise. And then it's like the calm after the storm almost kicks in maybe sooner than you might expect.
0: Yeah, it definitely calms down pretty quickly after that. But so this is the last one of the last major aspects that we get of Uranus in Aries. And it's almost fitting that that's like the last major aspect with Uranus completing its nearly decade-long transit through Mars's sign. Um do you I guess we already talked about this and we did a sort of retrospective of what Uranus going through Aries has been for each of us. Uh probably on the last episode is that when we did that discussion Yeah oh, God,
2: I think it was ahead, the last maybe? episode. Either that or yeah. the yearly okay. And then I'm I'm sure we talked about it when Uranus made its initial ingress into Taurus last year. Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, these Mars-Uranus conjunctions are like really extreme punctuation points of the longer Uranus in Aries trend. So for anyone who's sort of curious about it, we've had three or four of these already, like, you know, going back two years and then two years prior and two years prior to that. Um, So that could be a fun thing to check back in just to see what might've been going on for you uh, with this longer eight-year chapter coming to a close and then having these sort of periodic Mars-Uranus interactions in that time frame.
0: Yeah, definitely. That's a really good idea in terms of past research and looking at the past in order to anticipate and predict the future.
1: Yeah, it it's, can be really useful from a learning perspective as well, just to see how that's been for you. Um, yeah, I think we did talk about it. Because Austin, you were talked about it maybe being tenth house and yeah,
0: I gave a little how mystery. your career
1: has changed. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. All right. So um, that's one of the more dynamic and sort of explosive configurations this month happening. It looks like it goes exact around the thirteenth of February, uh, the Mars Uranus conjunction, and that's sort of a nice bookend for the first half of the month. Um, but backing up back to the very beginning of the month to keep things roughly chronological one of the other shifts that occurs pretty early on in the month is um, we get the very tail end of Venus being in Sagittarius with Jupiter, but that's pretty much over just a few days into February. And Venus ingresses into Capricorn on February 3rd and finishes up its lovely conjunction with Jupiter in Sagittarius and makes its way down into the sort of darker hallway of moving through Capricorn over the course of the rest of February because it basically spends the entire month of February moving through Capricorn where it slowly starts hitting all of those outer planets um, first with a conjunction with Saturn then a conjunction with Pluto and then finally it squares Uranus before it leaves and moves into Aquarius in March.
2: Yeah, and that's part of that's part of a general trend in February which is going from fiery and dynamic um, mm. to earthy. Um, mm. Right? So you know because uh, as, as January ends and February begins, we have both Venus, we have Venus and Sag, and we have Mars and Aries. And then you know Venus moves into cap, right? So we're going from from fire to heavy Earth. Additionally, um, we also have Mercury going from air, Aquarius into watery Pisces and then Mars from, uh, you know, from electric conjunction with uh, Uranus and Aries into grounded Taurus. So that's all three of those planets moving from signs of a young polarity into yin, right? Into earth and water and that's really, it's that tone um, mm. that's set by the second half of February that really endures for much of March. It's almost like the next actual, you know, like that's the actual, you know, that's almost the next month in the sense that that's what it feels like. And there's a real shift away from the like fiery, intense, go, 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 busy, 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 put out fires, start fires, et cetera, et cetera, vibe that, that, that's there at the end of January and the first
0: part of February. And it's, you know, one piece at a time. Definitely. I love that. Um, and I think, I mean, in terms of Venus at least, and just isolating Venus's transit through Capricorn, I think this is one of the more positive transits happening this month because I feel like it's going to, for some people, lighten up some of what have otherwise been a pretty heavy transit of Saturn through Capricorn over the course of the past year, especially for some people with night charts where that Saturn transit might be a bit heavier or might be a little bit more restrictive. Uh, in terms of the house that it's traveling through and the part of their life that it correlates with. Uh, having Venus dip into Capricorn it seems like more of like a counterbalancing or an alleviating influence, uh, even if only temporarily, uh, that's kind of like lightening up the mood a little bit in the Capricorn part of your chart. I hope you that's got... correct.
1: <laughs> I'm waiting for Austin's dissension on this.
0: <laughs> I'll just say that I hope
2: that's right. I mean, generally, I don't like to have my benefics teamed up on by three malefics, but...
0: Yeah, I mean, Saturn con- or Venus conjoining Saturn is not usually a super light and carefree type energy, uh, even less so Venus conjoining Pluto, which it does a few days later. And then Venus squaring Uranus is also a bit um, unstable in terms of the v- Venus-related Significations, but nonetheless, it's like my thinking is if you're just experiencing Saturn and Pluto transiting through that part of your chart, you're already not having like a party in that part of your chart, let's say, over the course of the past year. So, at least if Venus comes in there, that's a much different energy that's at least temporarily being imported into that area of your chart. And while Venus may not be having like the best time, like it shows up to a pretty lame party. And it's trying to at least spruce things up. Uh, that's at least something compared to you know what you've been dealing with for the past thirteen months at this point in that sign.
2: Yeah, I'd rather I'd rather um, I'd rather my Venus stay or I'd rather Venus stay in Sag with Jupiter personally. But that's what's coming up. You know, I think that there are, there are two sides to it. One is Venus is trying to help, but it also puts yeah. Venus in the you know in the middle of the trouble. And one of the things that, one of the ways that I experience Venus transits and see other people experience them is that whatever Venus is touching in the sky um, tends to be something that you feel. Um, and that um, some, planets are, some planets are nice to feel. They have a, a velvety texture. <laughs> um, and then some are, some, some, would, some you'd rather not feel. It's like um you know I like horror movies but I don't want to be super o- heart centered and open and watch a horror movie I'd rather like <laughs> you know I'd rather have some distance and so you know I think it's it's a little bit of both the way I wrote about it the way I thought about it is it's um Venus sort of Venus for this it's about mm, two weeks um, when Venus is really in the middle of it during the second half of Capricorn mm. that you know it's like Venus is mm, like is gonna kind of push us to come to terms emotionally w- with what's happening in that area and figure out, you know, figure out a way to try to be okay with it, which you know is both an improvement and an unpleasant experience.
1: Yeah, I I do sort of feel that Venus is going to bring a little bit of moisture into this very parched place. Perhaps uh, I don't know that she'll you know take away what's going on because of course she won't, but. I don't know. There's something about Venus Saturn that is sobering and crystallizing and clarifying. It may not feel great, but it helps reveal what is solid or what is substantial, as it also reveals what is not solid or what is not substantial. And that's where some of the uh, you know, if there is any disappointment or that sort of reality check, you know, it it won't be telling you something that hasn't already been in play. It's just bringing you to a point where you can be honest with yourself about it.
2: So I completely agree with you about Venus-Saturn. But for me, it's like, oh, but there's so much other stuff going on. Um, totally. You know, if it was just Venus and Saturn, I, I would I would have a very different read on it. It's just that, you know, South Node and, and Pluto – um they're they're so complicated. They bring up like shadowy, yes. half-understood, half-processed, confusing, you know, it it's if it was just Saturn, um, yeah. I I I wish it was just Saturn.
1: Yeah. I mean, I always think yeah, Venus South Node I'm very Yeah, I think that can be quite tricky or challenging, and I always think it's about sort of dealing with the ghosts or the emanations of relationships past or, you know, of people from the past and I I agree with that word that you use, Austin, around the shadowy kind of stuff that is often happening in the background, but we're often oblivious to it. But it is, I think it's February 22nd and then February 26th that Venus kind of hits Pluto and then the South Node. So it is pretty heavy, you know, towards the very end of the month there.
0: Yeah. And I mean, some people are going to experience these transits as being constructive and relatively positive. And that's something I want to be clear about Uh, because one of the things I was actually concerned about about our yearly forecast is I'm a little worried that we were almost too overly pessimistic or negative in the yearly forecast and that people kind of left bummed out about it, which on the one hand is, I understand, appropriate for what we were talking about. And you can't necessarily get around completely when you're dealing with a year where there's like a Saturn moving through Capricorn and an impending Saturn-Pluto conjunction and some of the other heaviness that we talked about. Uh, But nonetheless, uh, I definitely meant to, I think in retrospect, after listening to it again, try to bring in some of the counterbalancing positive stuff since sometimes as astrologers, I think we can tend to focus on the things that stand out more. And sometimes the things that stand out more easily are the things that are a little bit more challenging. Um, But sometimes it's worth it to sort of like go out of your way to see the what the silver lining is or what the possible positive manifestation could be, even of some of the most challenging transits.
2: Well, I thought Absolutely. we did a wonderful I'm- job balancing yeah. it, Chris.
0: <laughs> I, I'm not sure if meat grinder was necessarily the most <laughs> balanced Well, so that's uh, my job that on that the podcast. Out, you guys
2: were came. supposed to counter that.
0: Okay. Well, that's, <laughs> that I is what I'm doing. You?
1: Okay, right. I failed in my duties. I mean, I do have something that I'm actually really looking forward to with Venus going into Capricorn. And I feel my thought is that this is a stabilizing energy. So as much as, you know, on paper in theory, Venus in Sag with Jupiter is like amazing and golden and double benefic. I do think that for some people that's been excessively hectic in that there's been maybe either too much of a good thing or just too much of too much. And one thing that I think Venus moving into Capricorn Just because of the, you know, the nature of Capricorn is more solid and planned and measured, and I totally know like Pluto and South Node are there, but I do think there is going to be a bit of like a calming or a stabilizing quality, and I think for some people they're going to love that change of Venus moving into Capricorn from that perspective.
0: Right, I love that. That's a great point, also because that Venus Jupiter conjunction was also squaring Neptune at the same time, and while it's also it's very optimistic, there's something that's very lacking in realism. You can't hold
1: it. There's an intangible quality to it.
0: Yeah, it's just not being realistic or grounded. And Venus moving into Capricorn and forming a conjunction with reception with Saturn is a, a much more grounded type of, you know, if it goes in the Venusian sense of like relationships, that's a much more practical and a much more realistic type relationship setting compared to Venus conjunct Jupiter square Neptune. Um, Yeah. So, that's, you know, that's something potentially positive.
1: Well, and it is, I mean, I don't know, this is kind of the the point we're kind of speaking to, I guess, is the difference between the theory of the astrology versus the lived experience of what that looks and feels like in an individual's life. Mm -hmm. And I'm not trying to pretend that Capricorn is a happy place right now, but some good can come from calming and stabilizing, basically.
0: Sure. As a sort of counterbalancing thing, it's definitely a stark contrast between, let's say, mid-January versus mid-February, and what a Venus-Jupiter conjunction looks like versus a Venus-Saturn conjunction.
2: So, one thing that I will say is that I one of the part of the context for this period of time is that very early in February we get a lunation that is not eclipsed, and so we move out from under the the shadow. Of the uh, of the two eclipses in a row in January, and that you know what I find is and we've talked about this before. You know it's, it's eclipse season, and so we get to yeah. leave, and you know when it's eclipse season, there's a little there's a little funky darkness all over the place, um, and it, it shades, you know it would shade my interpretation of what the month as a whole is like, and so we move out of that very early in the month, and so while Venus may be going through some very difficult terrain during the second half of February. At least it's not in the context of, uh, of either a solar or lunar eclipse, but back on the standard mm-hmm. cycle of light and darkness.
0: Speaking of, did you guys watch the lunar eclipse that night in Leo a few yeah. weeks ago? Was it, was, uh, it was amazing.
2: it was completely uh, the 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 rain cover here or the cloud oh, cover no. here was so thick that oh. you, you Pacific couldn't, couldn't even see it. Couldn't even see it. It was
0: oh, really it, it was really brilliant. Like we went outside and we caught it right at as it was exact and it really drove home the meaning and the symbolic significance of eclipses for me. Um, in a way that the solar eclipse did, but I just I forgot how much what a really a lunar eclipse is in a very literal sense. It's like you're standing there, the moon is full. So it's at a full moon and the moon is at its brightest and it's basically not as bright, but it's basically acting in the same role that the sun does during the day in that it's lighting everything up and it's providing light. And then all of a sudden for this brief period of time, the moon is just suddenly darkened and it becomes much darker out and the light of the moon is literally eclipsed and there was something very visceral about that just like the the great american eclipse what a year and a half ago uh which was also in leo but i just forgot what an actual like lunar eclipse was like did you get to see it in person kelly
1: yeah we were actually down in palm springs and we had beautiful clear skies and i i had it reminded me that i had seen a lunar eclipse before back in sydney in 2007 or 2008 and it, it, I was struck by, it, it lasts quite a long time from when, right. you know, the dragon, if you like, starts to swallow the moon. So, the darkness and then the redness that kicks in, you know, you, I agree with you completely, Chris. It's when you see it and we we sort of tracked it and it, you could see the moon looking different for a couple of hours. Um, We saw it at its peak, but then at the build up and then the fade out and- it really does bring home how scary that would be if you were an ancient culture and this was a source of light for you or a cycle that you were relying on. Um, So it was, it was really quite striking to see. So yeah, unfortunately, of course, not everyone would have had clear skies and you couldn't see it in every part of the world. But I think if ever there is a lunar eclipse near you that you can see, it's worth taking that time to pop out and have a look. You, You get it viscerally in a way you don't get from reading about it.
0: Yeah, and, and I mean the thing about it that st- struck me was just how anomalous it is. It's like you're in the it's yeah. like you're in the middle of the day and the sun is out and bright and shining in a solar eclipse, and then suddenly it's dark and it's it's flipped. It's almost like it's nighttime, and you get the same effect with a lunar eclipse where it's the middle of the night, the moon is shining and it's bright as it should be because we have a full moon every month, just like the normal monthly cycle. Of the sun and the moon, and the moon, like at a new moon, starting out dark and then growing and becoming full two weeks later, and so on and so forth. But then something happens, and for a brief moment in time, the natural cycles of things are like interrupted and sort of disrupted in some way. And uh, having that sort of experience, sort of viscerally, just gives you a much greater understanding of why eclipses are important because it's not just a normal full moon or new moon. But that like anomalous phenomenon of almost the light that's being provided at the time and the interruption of that suddenly shifting is almost like a marker or an omen itself that there's some sort of more notable new beginning or more notable culmination that's happening at that time. Absolutely. Yeah. So that was part of what I got from it. And I just wanted to mention that just because it seemed like it was a big deal. It was kind of cool watching everybody talk about it and watching all of the like the photos come in from around the world and. People talking about it on Twitter. I mean, there was some sort of social media like stupid name that somebody came up f- with for it. What was it again? It was like Blood Wolf Super Moon or something.
2: Yeah. Oh
1: yeah. When I
2: think in some calendar that is like that, that is the Wolf it Moon, is. and it was a yeah. super moon, which is not hyperbole. That's an actual. It means that it was you know the moon was near perigee. Um, right. it was an eclipse, which does look like a blood moon. But when you put it all together,
0: it's a little bit. Um. Well,
1: it's a little much. Yeah, it's a,
0: li- a lot much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wasn't sure if somebody was like trolling, if it was like somebody was like, "Let's try coming up with a crazy name for this and seeing if we can get it to catch on." Uh, almost seemed what, what the case was at first, but um, all right. So back to your the point. The
1: lunations in February very different.
0: Yeah, I mean, almost in retrospect or in comparison, kind of disappointing. That was actually my issue. Is this is the first non eclipse lunation that we've had in aquarius for a couple of years and when i was trying to delineate that for the horoscopes i was trying to talk about it being like you know a new moon in aquarius and a new beginning that will then grow and develop over the next 6 months but as i'm saying that realizing how you know relative to the eclipses that have just been happening in that same part of your chart for 2 years um it's it's almost much more insignificant in some ways so it was hard to hype more, it up too much yeah well it's more like a breath of fresh air after those years
2: of that, you know, the eclipses, you know, the transiting nodes and the eclipses on them, they get you to change in those areas, but change is energy intensive and exhausting. It's nice to have, you know, to complete a cycle of change. We're usually, we're usually pretty done. (laughs) We're usually pretty done with it after a year and a half or two years.
1: Yeah. It's like a return, return to normal programming in this area of life. And the lunation has a nice little sextile from Jupiter.
0: Yeah, exactly. Which is not yeah. all bad. That is nice. Yeah. All right, so we got that new moon it's, that's taking place there on, looks like the 4th of February in Aquarius. It looks like, what is it, 15, 16 Aquarius?
1: Yeah, I think 15 maybe technically. And that'll be um, Tuesday the 5th for people in Australia. Um, yeah, and that first week of February, we've got the new moon in Aquarius. And then later that week, the sun actually makes the direct sextile to Jupiter. Uh, because, you know, planets in Sag, of course, get to be in the same sign as Jupiter, but planets in Aquarius are also escaped from the Capricorn stuff and getting a nice sextile from Jupiter. So that's a nice little lift, Mm -hmm. too, I think.
0: Definitely. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah.
1: When we're talking about elections before in Austin, you were like, yeah, just put the Moon in Sag. I'm like, yeah, my backup is the Moon in Aquarius. <laughs> that's good. Um, <laughs> or
2: Moon in Leo too. Um, you know, One thing yeah. that's nice about Leo is that Leo doesn't have the North Node in it anymore. So it just gets yeah. to be Leo.
1: Yes.
0: All right. So let's see. So we talked about Venus and its trek through Capricorn. Uh, we talked about Mars in the first half of the month going through Aries and conjoining Uranus. Uh, we talked about the first lunation of the month, which is the new Moon in Aquarius. Um, we're coming up then the other major interplanet shift chronologically, I think unless there's anything I'm overlooking is Mercury moving into Pisces on the 10th of February, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's a big- idea.
1: Yes. We, we do need to give some airtime to that.
0: Alright, so there that is. So just throwing it up on the Solar Fire chart right now, there's Mercury moving into Pisces on the 10th of February. And this is actually beginning what normally it would just be a quick little jaunt through Pisces over the next two to three weeks. But this one is unique where Mercury is actually going to be uh, having an extended stay in Pisces over the course of the next couple of months due to a retrograde period right before he departs from the sign.
2: Yeah, it's there. Mercury's in Pisces until April sixteenth. Yeah. Wow.
0: Okay. Two months. Two two months, two and a half months, or no, yeah, two months exactly, almost. So yeah, yeah. and um, let's see, where shall we begin? <laughs> so it's not just Mercury in Pisces, but of course he is joining up with our friend Neptune, which is around the middle of the sign at this po- point, around fifteen yep. degrees, and Mercury Three times. Uh, conjoins Neptune at 15 degrees of Pisces on the 18th of February. And normally, as usual, that would just be like a once a year, very quick, very brief conjunction that Mercury would make with Neptune, as it always does uh, whenever it catches up to Neptune once a year. But this, this year is a little different uh, because Mercury shortly after it completes its conjunction with Neptune on February 18th begins slowing down as it moves into the later degrees of Pisces and eventually slows down so much that its stations retrograde. Uh, Next month around March 4th or March 5th of 2019, stations retrograde at 29 degrees of Pisces and then begins moving backwards where it conjoins Neptune for a second and then eventually a third time because it stations direct around the same degree of Neptune, around 15, 16 degrees of Pisces. So that kind of obviously that takes us forward a little bit far, takes us a little far afield into the, the forecast for March and basically April as well. But it's necessary to mention here because towards the later part of February, Mercury actually enters its shadow, uh, which is the degrees that it will retrograde back to. And that first conjunction with Neptune actually becomes the first in a sequence of three conjunctions. Which then means that it's probably more important and will probably stand out in some people's chronologies as much more notable than it should be otherwise. Yeah. You guys um, excited about this? You sound,
1: well, I was like,
0: you're breathless in your excitement. We're
1: speechless. About this.
2: Yeah. Well, so one, one thing I was going to say is that Neptune basically is Mercury's shadow. Because it it Mercury yeah. stations right. retrograde, or excuse me, stations direct conjunct, re, conjoined to Neptune in the same degree, so like mm-hmm. that's the shadow is Mercury's first conjunction to Neptune, yeah, um, and then that you know that's where it's coming back to, and so you know again like with uh, uh, just contextualizing this in terms of the you know general vibe of the month. We've got both Venus and Mars having, you know, well into Earth signs at this point, point. and so you know we go from having a lot of fire and air to a lot of water and Earth, and so you know it's a little it's a little muddy. I imagine the pacing will slow down, which um, again may be a relief to some people, um, but it's obviously not um, amazing for getting things done quickly. Um, or for having things, you know, having plans unfold in an efficient manner entirely in accordance with your intention. There's a you know, it's a lot of
0: <laughs> swimming and I, I really like the careful way that you just phrased that. That was really good. You're welcome. Could you repeat that actually? That was so carefully <laughs> and precisely constructed. No, <laughs> so uh, I because there's a there's a like a much more uh casual, let's say, way that you could have phrased that just now, but you you did actually a really good job of doing it very um professionally
2: well thank you i'm yeah i'm um haunted by um uh, a spirit that's very articulate and professional that possesses me a few minutes at a time every day right like i think I don't think I can replicate it
1: yeah all right well done. I, I mean because I would also
0: like to hear the other version of that the meat grinder version, let's say so to speak <laughs> uh of that delineation um I mean, you can let it sit with you for a few minutes if you want. My, well, the
2: image in my mind, or the, the it's a statement in my mind, which is I'm thinking with soup here, like having beef yeah. stew instead of uh, brain tissue. That's
1: uh... <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, you know, it's...
2: It, you know, some people get this in terms of you know the interior states, and some people get this, you know, um, socially, like this will be someone in their life, or you know, whatever but it i mean it's about as it's about as impeded as mercury can be in mercury's you know clarifying rational linear order um duties without without actually being um what's interesting is it's not really um afflicted in the sense that it's not getting like horribly beat up by malefics you know it's not a meat grinder um, no, it's you know it's actually you know Mercury is square Jupiter, um, for a yeah. lot of this and also ruled by Jupiter, um, and so you know it, it's it, it reminds me a lot of December's retrograde, December's Mercury retrograde, where um, Mercury you know Mercury was retrograde in a, in its sign of detriment. Here Mercury is retrograde in its sign of detriment slash fall. Both are Jupiter ruled and um, Mercury is configured to Jupiter for both of them. I think this there might be a little bit of that, that same like tons of classic Mercury retrograde problems, but things turn out okay in the end. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, yeah, I'll just, I'll lead with that.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good point to keep in mind that it is, uh, you know, Jupiter in Sag can act as a little bit of a balm or a helper or a saving grace here. I do think it is going to be, there are going to be some periods of kind of chaotic confusion almost with that classic misdirect or misunderstanding or crossed wires and one contributing factor, especially in that kind of February 19th, 20th period, is that we will have the second lunation for February, which is in Virgo. So it'll be ruled by this Mercury, which will be basically conjunct Neptune. And uh, I've been suggesting to people, just knowing Mercury's going into Pisces for such a long time, that if you do have like plans or schedules, or, you know, if you've got a bunch of stuff where you have to book travel, or you've got to organize logistics and things like that, you know maybe try and get it done before mercury goes into pisces but certainly if you can't get it done by february 10th then you know as soon as uh, thereafter you know as you can because this is going to be a little bit frustrating with some of the delays or the the classic communication snafus i think yeah i
0: mean cuz communication miscommunication is already like a mercury retrograde thing that sometimes happens just on its own but then miscommunication or um, communication that ends up yeah just not just being miscommunicated, but sometimes uh poor communication is almost like a Neptune Mercury thing in and of itself as well, so we've got like two compounding factors that are sort of emphasizing miscommunications and the and the danger of that at this time,
2: yeah, and I guess you know one of the things that I think this cycle screams is just confusion, like right. I don't know yeah. what to make of this. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes that's the that one's one of the things I see with a lot of Mercury retrogrades is that things aren't clear yet and that in order to arrive at, at what will seem in retrospect like the correct decision, you kind of have to wait for all of, the, all of the data to come in. And that could be internal or external data. Sometimes you're not ready to make a decision. You just kind of got to slide back and forth with Mercury and stay ambivalent until you've actually reached the point of clarity. You know, one of the things that I see people do all the time um, to escape the feeling of confusion, which and of course we wanna solve confusion, um, is to um, sort of leap towards the first premature piece of clarity, or the Mm. first premature answer to the question, But that's, you know, if it's not the real answer, then that's actually worse than just being like, yep, I'm confused. I'm going to have to just sit with this.
1: Yeah, I think that sitting with it is a great uh, tip or a great strategy. Somebody in the comments talked about planning for the Seattle conference. Yeah, I plan to finalize my flight details, you know, before Mercury gets into Pisces, basically. So if you do have travel arrangements to make for that conference, yeah, try and get that done before if you can. The other thing, though, you know, Mercury in Pisces, of course, is not good for maybe filing your taxes or doing detailed research or making clear decisions that are informed by facts. But Mercury in Pisces can be good for the inspiration, imagination uh, kind of realm where you may be figuring out what being intuitive looks like or what trusting your instinct rather than the information might look like. Mm I'm not saying that, you know, we should all just run around and go I had a feeling and I'm basing my whole life on it, but Mercury in Pisces is drawing us into that imaginal realm and particularly with these three conjunctions to Neptune, you won't be able to rely on facts or clear thinking in the way that you normally can and the point of that I think sometimes is to draw you into a deeper relationship with that more felt sense part of you that you may not be able to explain why you're comfortable or not comfortable with something but if you have that energy or inkling inside of you it's okay to sit with that and I think that's just kind of to your point Austin around like if you're confused just be confused you don't have to move out of the state that you're in in a hurry
2: yeah well and I agree with what you're saying entirely about um, navigating with a different set of instruments you know um, time to practice running on sonar
1: yeah Sure.
0: Um. But certainly, it's like you can try to do that. But also, I don't know. I feel like especially around the time of that first conjunction around the nineteenth, that people probably should be extra cautious, or at least strive to be as clear in communication as they can, or strive to integrate whatever counterbalance balancing measures that they can. Like if you have to sign a contract, being very careful to read through so that you understand all the details going into that contract because having a mercury retrograde where it's going to conjoin neptune and then come back twice more to those same degrees for two more conjunctions just really sort of smacks of like a misunderstanding or a miscommunication that then leads to a series of events that play out over the course of the next couple of months to me and sometimes that's like that that comedy of errors type situation like you know that cliche thing that always happens in like romantic comedies where there's just like some sort of miscommunication at the beginning. And if only they had not had that stupid miscommunication, the rest of the story wouldn't have taken place. um, And you basically would have just had like a 10-minute movie. That's kind of like what this Mercury retrograde uh, seems like to me. And it all gets started, like the initial event or miscommunication or circumstance that sets up the entire two-month story all takes place in that last week or two of February.
1: It's a really good point, Chris, how you're linking, you know, the events of the latter part of February with this next two-month chapter. And I think that, you know, what, as we know with any Mercury retrograde, we don't know what we don't know. And I think that phrase is even more potent or on point for such a confusing uh, time that Mercury is going in with Mercury-Neptune. We don't know what we don't know. Yeah,
2: Don't, don't sign the dotted line.
1: Yeah, I, I'm like when you said if you have to sign a contract, I'm like, I'd really try and avoid it. I'm really um, busy for
0: about <laughs> yeah. three weeks. Well, it's like yeah. you can try, but it's just like sometimes, like Austin, I, I keep thinking you of your last either. Mercury retrograde experience where it's like you had to get your, um, you know, your passport so you could go on that trip at that time. And mm-hmm. it was like not negotiable. It was just time to do this thing. And then you, of course, ran into the cliche Mercury retrograde delays and snafus and everything else, but through pushing through and through perseverance, you were eventually able to make the trip and everything worked out okay, but it just took some extra effort. I feel like we're getting the same thing here, but there's going to be some people where we can't just be like, don't do anything during the second half of February. Right, but if you
2: don't have to, don't. Sure, yeah. I mean, And that's always the election. Well, it's not don't do anything, it's don't do anything that is primarily mercury dependent.
0: Right. Yeah. But if you are, you know, and if you have to, all-
2: then try to get it done earlier. Try to get as much as you can done before, before we get into hot water or, you know, whatever, chunky water, whatever, <laughs> whatever it is, polluted water, uh, psychedelic laced water. Murky. Um, Murky and water. if it's you have to do me. it at that time, then just, you know, factor that in be like, yep, it's probably going to be a pain in the ass set, so, you know, and give yourself like. Don't be like, yep, it's going to be one quick trip, and this is going to be taken care of. Like, give yourself, right? You know, give yourself. Be like, okay, well, you know, hopefully it's quick, but I should not be shocked, um, and surprised, and and hurt, and confused if this takes a little longer.
0: Right. Well, and that's exactly what's going to happen. Yeah. And there's going to be some people that do it, and they have to do the thing at that time, and then they see pretty quickly, oh, there's been a miscommunication oh, it's now leading to this result in this series of events that I'm going to have to deal with over the next few weeks as I try to work this out and straighten out this thing, and people will be more aware of it as it's happening. And you won't necessarily be able to completely avoid it, because we can't all just like completely stop doing any mercurial activities during the second half of February. Um, but certainly by being aware of it, you can at least hopefully mitigate some of the worst-case worst scenarios of it um, with a little bit of effort.
1: Yeah, I think that's key whenever Mercury is a little bit uh, floaty, is that uh, a little bit of extra effort is required. You've got to double check or you've got to do it twice or even three times. Right. Uh, I mean, I know for me, like I fly back to Australia just around like the day before this happens. And then I'm going to be settling into, you know, my normal client consult practice and things like that at home. And I'm like, yeah, these types of things are when technology doesn't work as expected. And it takes longer to make connections, you know, that normally happen quite quickly. And I'm not going to take that time off from, you know, seeing clients, for instance. But I'm just, I'm going to know that we need a bit more uh, flexibility, or it's worth double checking about different things, just to make sure everyone's on the same page. And that's right. sometimes, you know, necessary with Mercury is just the extra effort.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, lo- I love that. That's great because you also know then not to get overly frustrated. Whereas if you were not paying attention to it, like you might. Get frustrated, or if there's like a client and their their Tartalite. technology is like on the fritz, you might be annoyed. You're like, oh, this is taking up extra time or something like that. But you being aware of that is going to give you a little bit more peace of mind to just um, anticipate it ahead of time, but also just to be patient with it as it's playing out for people.
2: Yeah, I get um, every Mercury retrograde, I get um, like three times as many client reschedules. Where people yes. like email me and they're like, "Yeah, I know we we're set for the fourteenth, but I I had this thing, and I'm just like, yeah, it's fine, it's par for the course, right.
0: yeah." <laughs> or like I thought I, I thought we you- were. It's like three yeah. o'clock, and they say I thought we were on for like one o'clock today or something I like thought that. You said Tuesday, right?
1: Yes. And it's there's a forgetfulness component to Mercury with Neptune or Mercury and Pisces, and yeah, I've noticed that even back to my massage therapy days. Would be like, oh, it's Mercury retrograde. We're going to have half the clients reschedule. Um, but the funny thing that used to happen with that is, and it still happens today, even with astrology clients, is somebody will be like, oh, my God, I can't make it. And then somebody else will, will email and be like, I really wanted to try and get in quickly or what have you. And it'll be like, oh, well, this other person has just had to step out so I can actually step you straight in. Right. So I, I I don't know if that's me personally, but I often find when in those Mercury retrograde rescheduling situations, it tends to work out really well kind of as it was meant to, if yeah, that makes the,
0: sense. the importance of like staying open and flexible and like available for unexpected but uh, fortuitous sort of reschedulings,
2: yeah, that, and that, totally. that's part of um what i was I was getting at with ambivalence. be like, okay, like we'll, you know, we'll see, okay, so I have to reschedule there. see like what you said, like see who literally see who comes in to fill that slot. um totally. You know, I, I I have that I have at least one or two like positive unscheduled developments per Mercury retrograde. Whereas like I yep. wasn't gonna do it this way, but now that I have to, um, it's good. It's not I but I think it's important to say that, that def, that's definitely a Mercury retrograde phenomenon. But it's mm-hmm. not one yeah. for one. It's not like every fuck up that happens during Mercury Retrograde is divinely ordained and is going to be replaced with something better. If you if you yeah, set expectation true. for that, you will be sorely disappointed. But it happens. <laughs> it's
0: probably like two
1: it to does. one or like three
0: to one. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd be comfortable yeah. with that. 2.73 to
0: one. Oh,
1: let's be precise. Oh, my God.
0: <laughs> that is what Mercury Neptune loves is. Is precision, I think, above all, all else. Right, guys.
1: A hundred percent, very detail oriented. Well, but it was
0: made up precision, so maybe Neptune will be down with that. Uh, that right. Neptune
1: was all over that. You <laughs> the, just pulled that figure out of the well, air, and maybe that's a Mercury <laughs> that's Neptune true.
0: signification, right? Pretending, yeah. pretending to have precision. Yeah, uh, made up data. Pretending, right?
1: Just faking it till you make it, kind of thing. Um, yeah.
2: But so let's talk yeah. about that full moon. It's kind of a fun full yeah, moon. The full
1: moon Virgo, right on Regulus. Yeah, like
2: right on Regulus within the degree.
1: Macbang. Yeah.
0: I'm not used so we'll to be expecting still Regulus being talked about as being in Virgo now tropically rather than Leo.
1: Yeah, it takes me a minute to catch up. We need to Michael yeah. Luton
2: needs to sit you down and explain it for 3 to 7 hours. <laughs> All right. Remember he he had he gave uh he that was like his thing for a while.
0: Yeah, no, I remember he did didn't like one of his his plays at one of the UAC was like all themed about Regulus moving into Virgo. I think wasn't it in twenty twelve?
2: Yeah, I believe so. I believe that I um I believe I I was in that play. I'm not <laughs> sure what I was exactly. I was painted green and I had crow wings. It was never exactly explained to me why I was doing this, but it was a pretty good time.
0: Right.
1: Green with crow wing crow wings. Oh my goodness. <laughs>
2: But anyway, yeah, regular oh, parties,
1: dif- conference parties. Yeah. So what do you want to say about this, often? Tell us.
2: Well, um, so I don't know. Um, so it was interesting. Like one, it's it's interesting because it's in the very first degree of the sign, yeah. just like uh just like our eclipse was last month. We're having our full moons mm-hmm. really early in signs. And so that's kind of interesting just in, insofar as it shifts. Um, the topic to, it shifts the general topic to that next axis of signs, you know, like 20 hours before this full moon, the sun was in Aquarius and it's like, boom, now we're dealing with Pisces, sun and Pisces and boom, here's the full moon in Virgo, you know, Virgo Pisces axis, like this is what we're doing. It's like a much quicker subject change. And I felt I felt that um, really intensely this month, which with the sun's Ingress into Aquarius and then immediate full moon, eclipsed full moon in Leo. Like my first and second half of the month were so different. And some of that is certainly the eclipse's potency, but it's also that quick double shift to the next axis rather than, oh, the, you know, the, the, the sun's in that sign for a week and you get used to that. And then the moon comes around. It's a much quicker, it's a much quicker change up. As far as okay oh, Yeah, that's
1: that's a good point. I was just gonna say that's a beautiful point. I hadn't thought about it quite that way, but it makes complete sense. It's like this massive grand entrance of the Virgo Pisces time, if you like, or the, the Pisces time with the Virgo full moon.
2: Yeah, and with you know, at that point, all of our other planets have shifted, right? We've got our Mars, mm. Mercury, and Venus shifts are all well underway. And now we have the sun and moon, right, um, activating the the water earth axis. So this is, you know, overwhelmingly water, Earth, right? We have one, yeah. you know, one, two, three, four, five, six. Um, if you count the node planet in Earth, right, and uh, several things is uh, four things in water, right? All we have in fire is uh, Jupiter and Uranus, and then nothing in air, right? So this is, is very, it's very elementally, it's very different. Um, mm. You know, it's the psychedelic mudslide. Uh, <laughs> rather
0: than whatever we had before, <laughs> one one of the other things that that's interesting butterfly. is, um, in terms of the hemisphere emphasis, you know, if in some mm. charts all of these all of the planets are all over on one half of the chart, basically, or in one half of the zodiacal signs, and so I was noticing in some of the horoscopes that for some of the people, like some of the later rising signs, like Scorpio rising or, or Sagittarius rising, all of the planets are transiting through the bottom half of the chart and some of the personal personal houses at this point and the only thing that isn't this month is that lunation which is is the only thing that's over on the opposite end of the zodiac um, which is acting as a weird sort of counterbalance for some people this month depending on where all the other planets fall in terms of the hemisphere emphasis
2: that's a really interesting point i hadn't i hadn't thought about that yeah there everybody's almost everybody's over on one side
0: Yeah, somebody in the—and I forgot her name—but in the live stream pointed that out to me last night as I was going through, I think, the horoscope for Scorpio. So it was an interesting point to sort of contemplate then in terms of are all of the planets going through, let's say, the bottom half of your chart at this point or the top half of your chart? Are they going through the left side of your chart Mm -hmm. or the right side of your chart? And then how does that Virgo full Moon being the opposite to all of that sort of counterbalance things? Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting.
2: And so let's like just looking at the, I always like to look at the, you know, whatever aspects the moon has. So it's got a trine to Mars and Taurus. Generally, I don't like my full moons to have aspects to Malefic's, but that's pretty, I don't know, it's a trine. And yeah, I think Mars is um, going to be very sleepy after all of that action conjunct Uranus and Aries. So it doesn't bother me too much, but it's also the moon um you know just an out, maybe 2 hours before ingressing or maybe 2 hours before the the perfect moment of the full moon makes a trine with uranus and so there's like there's Mar- mars and you know the the moon's departing aspect is uranus and applying is mars and mm-hmm. so even though you know it's like a virgo moon and we've it's all earthy and stuff um there's a little bit of zip there you know with with the moon trining uranus and mars right yeah. And it, well, a little bit. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, certainly being conjoined Regulus, um, Regulus, that's another, there's some more secret tangy sauce uh, <laughs> that that mood is mixing up.
0: <laughs> and it's interesting with Mars there because, you know, there's such a calm period in late February as Mars is going through the first decade of Taurus in terms of coming out from all of that cardinal stuff that's been going on. But it's almost like the calm before the Taurus storm. Because Uranus is coming in right behind it uh, next month in March, and and then starts shaking things up in that sign. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. So they, there's this 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 full moon. I think is more dynamic than it looks because of those trines and because of Regulus. Because you know, among other things, Regulus has just got a lot of energy. Um, it'll mm-hmm. it'll make you famous, and mm-hmm. you know. Um, so I was looking at this full moon uh, a while back because Kate and I we're trying to figure out when to when to do um when to do more regulus work and at first yeah. it was like oh there's a full moon conjunct regulus let's you know that would be a perfect time to do more regulus stuff um but the more we looked at it we were like mm, actually january's regulus moon was better and so we did that i don't know for or mostly kate did that i just helped with the, the timing we decided on the january one and i think she's going to release that series on this full moon, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Hmm.
0: Nice. Uh, I've been enjoying oh, I'm, her I'm being, social I'm,
2: media. Po- you're,
1: you're, you are mistaken. Being you're being corrected. I'm being strongly informed
2: um, that uh, the series is getting released on the 7th, so that there'll be time <laughs> for it to ship in time to arrive on the full for moon. For
1: the full moon. Yeah. Got it. I knew the you full moon
2: was involved. R- remembered
0: that.
1: Yeah. The full moon was the trigger. I love it.
0: Uh, well, I've been enjoying Kate's social media posts, and she's been very active over the past couple of months, uh, pumping out some good content on some of her nice. astrological magic and related material. Um, what was her website again? Oh, it's com. Okay,
2: cool. Uh,
0: yes. Yeah. Well, uh, do you guys have anything else about that full Moon before we move on? I just remembered that I needed to mention the electional chart for this month. The electional
1: chart, which is at the very end of the month if you're doing Moon-Jupiter.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, So here is—I'm going to throw up the animated chart. I believe this is it. So this is the electional chart that uh, the master electional astrologer Lisa Scheim has picked out for us this month. It is a Jupiter election in order to get some of those great—to just like squeeze the last of some of these amazing Jupiter elections from the beginning of the year because of course, Jupiter is only going to stay in this amazing condition for so long. And in fact, a couple of months from now, it's, it's getting not too far away from stationing retrograde, at which point it's going to be retrograde for like a few months this year, which is not a complete deal breaker in terms of electional charts, but it is a little bit less than, than ideal. So if you want to really take advantage of some of the best Jupiter elections, we already had one of the best ones in early January. One of the next best ones are taking place this month in February. So the chart that we picked out for this month to feature uh, is set for February 27th around 645 in the morning uh, with early Pisces rising, but just after sunrise. So set the Ascendant for about 10 degrees of Pisces in your location, And if you do that, then that should be just after the Sun has risen over the eastern horizon, because the Sun is at about 8 degrees of Pisces in this chart on February 27th. If you do that, um, it sets up a chart where Pisces is rising, Jupiter is the ruler of the Ascendant, and it is located at 21 degrees of Sagittarius, and it is present in the 10th whole sign house with the Moon, which is also at 21 Sagittarius applying to a conjunction with Jupiter. So this one's a little tricky. It should work for most time zones uh, from Denver and east of Denver, but it might get a little bit uh, tricky where the Moon may have separated on the west coast of the United States or further west like Hawaii and other places like that. So try to make it so that the Moon is still applying to a conjunction with Jupiter. If it's not in your location, then all you have to do is just back it up one day earlier when the Moon is still in the earlier degrees of Sagittarius Put it so that Pisces is rising, and you should still get roughly the same electional chart, more or less. Uh, Austin, you and I were just talking about this. I think earlier before we started the show about uh, Moon Jupiter conjunctions this year, while Jupiter is in Sagittarius, being like one of the main things that we're going for in electional charts.
2: Yeah, just do it while the Moon's in Sag. This is um, this is glorious, and the uh, having Mm. the part of fortune on that Moon Jupiter conjunction is I don't know. That's just like a Little extra secret sauce. That's so good.
0: Right, that is nice. And then um, if you can, try to get the degree of the midheaven somewhere up there in your location in Sagittarius not too far from that Moon-Jupiter conjunction. Um, Mercury, uh, Mars is in the third house, and since this is a day chart, that's where it's a little bit problematic for third house uh, matters. Additionally, Mercury is very late in Pisces and it's getting ready to station retrograde only about a week after the election. So that is the part of this chart that is not optimal is it's an electional chart later in February. So it's really sort of already getting into the thick of that Mercury retrograde stuff. And even though Mercury is not retrograde yet, it's pretty close. So this is a really optimal Jupiter election. It's probably good for 10th house matters since it has the ruler of the Ascendant in the 10th very well situated um but it may not be very good for communication not just because of the mercury retrograde that's impending but also with mars in the third house in a day chart since the third house as i believe we discussed on a recent episode has to do with communication did we <laughs> did we settle that was that one did you guys have any further investigations on that third house communication
1: no. I haven't done any further research, but I have not forgotten that it is on my to be researched list. Yeah, okay. that's definitely st-
2: one of the things that happens in the third house.
0: I still have this image of both of you like busting out your copies of Firmicus Maternus, which apparently <laughs> Maternus. you both have within reaching distance of your desks. And yep. the thing that was funny about that is I also have a copy of Firmicus Maternus in reaching distance, but I just didn't pull it out. And I wish that I had because it would have been a good, good snapshot. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, this and this that is a, this funny. is a great like success election, you know. It. Like
1: yeah. it's pretty powerful. You know, like
2: the tenth house is by far the the best of what's going on here, and the the Lord of the Ascendant is in the tenth. Like it's great. It's you know this is a like being super successful at something, whether it's throwing a party or you know whatever it is. Um, it's it in a, a little bit of the vibe I get from it is it's sort of a like. Don't sweat the small stuff. Yeah, Mercury's doing whatever, but like here's ten times as much Jupiter, right? Just right on the moon on the part of fortune. That's just such an overwhelmingly that's such an overwhelming Jupiter, um, that you can get away with a lot of little things not working out. I do wish it wasn't the day and hour of Mercury, but I'll still give that I'll still give that an, an A grade. I like it. I'm gonna use it. Still give that up. Yeah,
1: it's a it's it the Jupiter. I mean, it ticks all my like major boxes for elections. The ascendant ruler is amazing and it is getting the benefit of the moon pushing onto it. Both of them are angular. And as Austin said, extra special source with the part of fortune there. And this is a great example of like no election chart will be perfect. And if you really want the good stuff, you just got to be prepared to take that little annoying niggle of, you know, the weird person in the corner or whatever it happens to be. Because the larger theme here is, this is quite golden.
0: Yeah, it's really nice. Yeah, so this is our uh, featured election for the month that we featured as the best election we could find for February. Uh, we also just recorded Lisa and I just recorded the next month's auspicious elections podcast, where we went through and picked three other electional charts for other parts of February. So to give you a total of, I think, four or five electional charts for next month, and that episode is going to be posted later today. It's available for patrons of The Astrology Podcast who support the podcast through our page on Patreon uh, on the 5 and $10 tiers. So we've got that. We also released earlier this month, we didn't, weren't sure if we we're going to do it, but we actually pushed it out at the end of December where we recorded a two-hour report where we went through and picked out one of the best electional charts we could find for each month of 2019 as a bit of an experiment because people keep asking us for long-term elections, On the monthly auspicious elections podcast, but that's not really how that's set up. So we decided to do a report for those long-term people that are looking for something for later this year, uh, and it ended up coming out pretty well. So I'll put a link to that. It's just titled 2019 Electional Astrology Report. If you Google that, it should come up. Otherwise, I'll put a link to it on the description page for this episode on theastrologypodcast.com. All right. And that is the election for the month. And that kind of brings us to the end of February. Is there anything I'm trying to look at my uh, planetary alignments calendar to see if there's anything major that I'm forgetting to mention? Um, Do you guys have anything? I mean, that Virgo full Moon and the Mercury sort of slowing down and getting ready to station really is the tail end of February, right? Yeah, it really is.
1: They are the big things, yeah. I mean, we touched briefly on like the moon, the Venus South Node, uh, February twenty sixth. Not you know on the level of the full moon, but it's happening. Yeah, I
2: feel like that's part of the. I, I feel like the um, that South Node flavor, that Venus South Node flavor, will be oh, how should we say um, most accessible then. But I feel like that's going to be just part of the flavor of once Venus. Um, closes on, closes in on Saturn. It's sort of you know yeah. it's a Saturn Pluto South Node um, you know Sunday, and that it'll just be the, the yeah. part of of Venus's movement through that area that most focuses on that. And of course, that'll be while Venus is square Uranus. It's kind of yeah
0: all one thing in a sense. That's what I'm looking What's at is happening? that Venus Uranus square because that's like the last I think it's the last major aspect. Interplanet aspect that Uranus gets before it completes its trek through um, Aries. I mean, because it's
1: moving in early March, Uh,
0: right? So Uranus, it looks like it moves in on March sixth. Is that correct? I believe that's the case. Yeah,
1: fifth or sixth rings rings a bell. Yeah, it's
2: yeah. I have um, my birthday is the day before, and so
1: I was yeah. I was trying to figure out what would be. Where that would be in relation to you? So yeah.
0: it's still at 29 so you, areas in your solar like, return. It's
2: it's at 29.59, <laughs> <laughs> and and Mercury has stayed. You know, Mercury stations retrograde within 24 hours of Uranus changing signs, as we've talked about before. And that's that's right. my birthday.
0: Nice.
1: Oh, that's okay. Got it. Uh... Good times.
0: Well, that's going to be fun <laughs> to talk about
1: next month on the forecast. In our next month's episode, yeah.
0: The forecast for March which we will be doing. We will be back again in a few weeks to record here uh, in the later part of February, I assume. Kelly, are you going to be back from your trip by then?
1: Yes, yes. I get home on the 18th. Yeah, so that latter part of February where Venus is in the hot mess, of part of Capricorn, we'll be recording then.
0: Cool. And I want to have you guys, now that I'm getting settled into the new studio and starting to do the live stream, one of these days you guys have to come out and join me for one of my marathon all-night horoscope recording sessions and uh, we can just stay up late and get progressively more tired and potentially silly recording horoscopes for one of these months. Mm. Only if there <laughs> are intoxicants
2: involved, I, I would I would require Yeah, like al- alcohol? Are
1: we allowed to drink? Alcohol <laughs>
2: plus something else. And maybe 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 oh. you get to pick the something else, but Chris, but there has to be it's there's got to be at least two types of intoxication happening.
0: Yeah, I have been talking to Cam White. He wants us to do a podcast which is drunk astrology. I'm trying to figure out if there's a way to do that without uh, accidentally offending, you know, somebody. Like if we did the horoscopes, I would feel bad if we accidentally said something about a sign that was not not good and like somebody took it to heart. I well, don't uh, I don't know I that mean, I, if I feel <laughs> like there's
2: a little buyer beware there. Like if you're looking to be dealt with sensitively and delicately. Maybe drunk astrology, the drunk astrology podcast, is not the the place, the place to go. To go. There are literally a thousand others.
0: Yeah, and um, Sh- Shakira in the chat says that I should try doing horoscopes zodiacally backwards or out of order sometimes. And I actually, did last month when Cam and I recorded them, we did a random number generator and did them randomly when we recorded. That way, we also spread it across two days so that. Um, we did record them randomly so that no sign necessarily got the short short change just because they were at the end or something like that. I did decide last night to do it in order because I was concerned about since I was doing it live for everybody on Twitter and Facebook and YouTube, like people being able to anticipate what sign was coming first and being able to tune in at different points. So that's why I just did it from Aries through Pisces last night, um, but I'll try different things in the future. Yeah, got to keep them guessing. Yeah, and yeah. She, she says she appreciates that as a Pisces rising. I understand. Yeah, and Arthur also mentioned to that that to me as a Pisces that uh, sometimes when people go through all twelve and they get to the end, that Pisces kind of sometimes gets screwed because the astrologer is so tired that they just want to get get it over. I was a little bit out of it, but one thing I will say uh, to counterbalance that is, by the time you get to Pisces, you've done it so many times that actually you guys yep. get the most the best. Um, refined. And like well-directed delineations, just because the astrologers like got it down at that point, and they know the month like the back of their hand by the time they get to that sign. So they may be a little yeah, tired. I noticed... uh, I'm not gonna lie yeah. about that.
1: <laughs> not gonna lie. I mean, when I used to write a lot of horoscope columns, I'd sometimes think, uh about, you know, I'd write Aries and Taurus, and then I'd get to the end. I'm like, oh, I need I can say what I said in Aries and Taurus a little bit better now because I've you know, been refined, yeah. I think right. Aries actually
2: gets the short end of the stick uh, a lot of the time, yeah. I like that's the one I, I end up editing uh, the most because I'm like a lot of times it's twice as long and half as good as the other yeah. ones because I'm like trying to figure out how to, like, you know, we, we talked about trying to get a hold of that poem, like you were saying, uh, at the beginning, Kelly, yeah. Um, whereas, like, I yeah. got it,
0: I've got it down by the end. Yeah, Yeah. that's true with my videos as well, that the Aries and the early ones tend to be longer so that sometimes people perceive that as like they're getting a better deal or a longer delineation, but it's actually because you're still getting the hang of the month as you're going through them. But once you've got a number under your belt, you're actually getting more concise because you know the main points. Yeah. Does one of you have a chicken in the (laughs) background?
1: Sorry, I know it's a chicken. I think mom just fed the chickens. It's all... uh... Very much uh, bar- backyard barnyard type of situation here at Mom and Dad's. They must have just been bed or they're laying eggs. No, that's fine. I love something. that. I was just making
0: sure I was not sure who that was coming from.
1: Yeah, I was like, oh my god, that's going to be so loud. Um, thanks, Stephen, for fixing that when you edit.
0: <laughs> no, I think we're leaving that in. Uh, that is a first. Okay, all it's right.
1: Very Australian. <laughs> Great eggs, though, because they've just come from the backyard.
0: Nice. Um, All right, guys. So, let's wrap this up for February. Um, Kelly, people can find out more information about you at kellysastrology.com. You're doing a monthly private forecast, which you do each month where you go through everything in more detail. Uh, That's one of the main things you're doing right now.
1: Yeah, for my monthly subscription. Yeah. So, week ahead, month ahead videos where we just uh, break down everything. Uh, So, if you want even more month ahead stuff, you can sign up um, by the homepage. It's at the bottom, scroll down.
0: Cool. And that's at Kelly'sAstrology.com. Uh, Austin, you are doing your Patreon thing where you're sending out your monthly written astrological forecasts ahead of time each month. You're also launching, you finally actually launched your podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I launched you did the first episode.
2: Yeah, I launched uh yes. eavesdropping at midnight is what I ended up calling it. Um and yeah, it's a series of interviews, extended conversations between myself and other practitioners of the various stuff that I practice. And it comes out whenever I feel like it. <laughs> All right,
1: I love your scheduling, Austin. I have so it's, many things that are so tightly scheduled. Innovative. I have
2: friends that are podcasters. Yeah. I don't need another full-time job. It's a little side project. I think it's fun. Um, I think at least some people really like it. <laughs> of course. Um, but of course. I, I just can't tie myself to another, to another regular production schedule thing. Regular things. I have like – yeah. I have a couple in the can already. And so, you know, there might be some months where I drop three, and there might be some where
0: I cruelly withhold. We'll find out. Yeah. I love it. You're a cruel taskmaster of a podcast runner, but I appreciate (laughs) it. I love it. Uh, So people can just do a search for eavesdropping at midnight, and it looks like your website comes up, which is the primary place it's at, is at austincopic.com, but it's also available on iTunes. Uh, if you do a Google search for eavesdropping at midnight, and it shows up in a few other places, it looks like as well.
2: Yeah, we're, we're getting we're getting it uh, hooked into all of the standard podcast outlets. But yeah, it's just on my website. You can see there's a thing that says eavesdropping at midnight on the homepage, so right there.
0: Cool. And speaking of podcasts, Kelly, um, you guys are really doing a great job with your new podcast that you're doing with Cassandra. Uh, that seems to be going really well.
1: Yeah, we're having a lot of fun and I'm laughing because Alicia, the third um, leg of the water trio, she often has chickens in her, um, in the background okay. we're recording. Um, that's why, I mean, it's such an Australian thing. But yeah, no, we're dropping a new, we, we. Um, unlike Austin, we decided to shack ourselves to a weekly schedule nice. <laughs> and so we're dropping a new episode every Monday and that's just a 30 minute look at the week ahead. Uh casual few laughs um some good juicy insights there yeah we we are on soundcloud and itunes and we just started a facebook page and we're actually all doing a live event in sydney together tonight just for some of our listeners so it's sort of a small intimate gathering but we thought Look, we're all going to be together in the same country let's just do something but we're having a lot of fun with it um yeah it's like it's a it's a commitment to do the weekly but we we are really enjoying it and uh I think people are enjoying listening, so that's good. Well, I've
0: been listening and I enjoy it. Oh, good. (laughs) Yeah, it's really great. You guys are up to episode 13. So people can find that if they just do a Google search for Water Water Trio podcast. It comes up on Kelly's website, kelly'sastrology.com. It comes up on SoundCloud and it's also on iTunes, it looks like.
1: Yes. Yeah. And we did actually, we just had a lovely listener reach out a few weeks ago and say, I can do sound editing and so uh, the last couple of episodes the sound has improved because we've had a sound editor helping us out which of course makes a huge difference so we're really grateful to him for coming on board and uh, just wanting to keep making it a great show for people as we as we grow.
0: That's good they can edit the chicken sounds in or out yeah. it's good to have somebody working with you for that purpose. Um
1: <laughs> yeah Oh, gosh.
0: All right. And as for me, uh, my main thing is just having launched that electional report, throwing the posters on Amazon now this month, and I'm going to keep plugging away with the podcast, which continues to grow and expand and develop. I just experimented with live streaming. Oh, yeah, I decided not to do the horoscopes. Oh, yeah, I don't think I'm going to do the horoscopes as an audio version this month on the podcast. They're just going to be video versions that are available on my YouTube channel, which is the astrology, which is youtube.com slash the astrology school. They're also available on my Facebook page and on my Twitter feed, which is Chris Brennan7. So people can find the horoscopes there this month if they want for their individual rising sign. All right. I guess that's it, guys. So we are done for the month of February. Uh, Thanks, everyone, for joining. Thanks for the audience and all the patrons who joined us today as a patron bonus are able to attend the live recording. It was great seeing some of your comments, so thank you for joining us. Thanks to all the patrons who support the show each month. Without you, we wouldn't be able to do it. And I'm going to keep growing and expanding the podcast over the course of this year. So thanks for joining me today, guys. Yeah, this was
2: fun.
1: Anytime. Always a good laugh. Thank
0: you. Yeah, I had a good time. So it sounds like the chickens are now done and are being. <laughs> of
1: course, because we're done yeah, now. Yeah, because
0: we're finished. So it's time to wrap up. <laughs> All right. So um, thanks a lot, everybody, for joining. Thanks for watching and listening. Be sure to like and subscribe, and we will see you next time uh, for the forecast for March. All right. Uh, have a good night.
1: Bye.